You could drive a sports car to show off to the neighbours. Or one of those everyone has these days. Or even a to prove to people on the school run you've made it. No, didn't think so. The Vauxhall Crossland X for £199 a month. For those who say the labels. Search Crossland X offers. Vauxhall. British brand since 1903. Personal contract hire on Crossland X Elite 1.283 PS. Subject to status T's and C's 18 plus. Initial rental 2388 plus 47 months at 199 inclusive of optional extras. 8,000 miles per year. You will not own the car. Vauxhall Finance Leasing. Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in the Empire Podcast series of spoiler specials. This one is dedicated to the 21st, the 21st movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It is of course Captain Marvel and joining me over the next hour or so to discuss the film in hugely spoilerific detail are three of the most powerful colleagues of such lethal cunning I know, even before they started shooting fire from their fists. But hang on a second... All of them could be scrolls. So, <gasps> prove it to me by telling me something about yourself that no scroll could possibly replicate. First up is Empire's editor-in-chief and Captain Marvel set visitor, the Marvelous Terry White. Hiya. Do you want my facts straight off the bat? No. Oh. <laughs> do, you, do you have yes. it ready? Yes, of okay. course I have it ready. Uh, is it spoilerific? My, about myself. Uh, oh, you're about yourself. Yeah. All oh, right. Okay. So you meant about my scroll fact that I no scroll would. Completely guess. forgot that I'd said you that. You did. You it did a whole set thirty seconds ago, Chris. <laughs> Listen, Heather. <laughs> my memory isn't what it used to be. See All what right. International yes. Women's Day does to them. <laughs> I've, been, I've been up in them. I've been up in a, in a sort of. I've been up to high dose since <laughs> three in the morning. So furious about International Women's Day. Terry, what is your fact about yourself that a scroll couldn't possibly replicate? My fact about myself is that I was called Brian Keenan at school because if you shout my name and tell me to wait it sounds like Terry Waite and Terry ah. Waite was kidnapped at around the same time as Brian Keenan and therefore I was Brian Keenan until I was 18 years old that's incredible who are these presumably horrible men no, they're good people. They were kidnapped. Oh, God, kidnapped. you're so, so young. young. Now so that young. I've seen Captain Marvel, I just think all men you're are bad. You're so young. <laughs> or that's precisely the sort of thing a scroll would have no knowledge of. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. Uh. We'll be grilling you. Uh, Terry Waite and uh, Brian Keenan were kidnapped in the 1980s mm-hmm. in, I want to say, Beirut? Beirut. Beirut. Yeah, Beirut. Yeah. And they were kidnapped and uh, held captive for many, many years. Jeez. And Terry Waite was an envoy for the Church of England. And his job was actually to... Uh, negotiate hostage rescue in Beirut and then one day he himself or as Terry might say he himself got <laughs> stolen stolen? <laughs> Pe- people stolen you know human trafficking has been going on for millions of years but only now have we just spotted it uh, anyway that's Terry White <laughs> this is going to be a long podcast next up uh, we have a man and I know a man I am as outraged as you are, uh, who is in many ways our very own goose. He is fluffy, he is lovable, and he'll have your eye out in a heartbeat. It's Ben Travis. Hello. How are you? I am good, I'm good. I've got my scroll fact, or non-scroll fact, ready, if uh, if you need. Uh, So the first album I ever got was Bewitched's solo, no, not solo, debut album. (laughs) 
Bewitched. <laughs> was it called Bewitched? It was called Bewitched. It had an orange cover. What do you and... like? <laughs> Look, I support girl power all the way. Is that a true fact, Ben? That's or are you fact. just trying to butter these two up? <laughs> you know what those women love? Other women. Irish women. They are In Irish. Double right? denim. Double denim. Yeah, that's the, uh, that's the key. Might have been that triple denim, actually. Oh as my much god! Denim as possible. No one could possibly go triple denim. That's oh. that's too crazy. Uh, last but not least, in this mammoth introduction is our geek queen who wrote Empire's four-star Captain Marvel review, yeah. a review with which she agrees wholeheartedly. <laughs> or do you, Helen O'Hara? Or do I? I uh, do agree uh, with myself, actually. You agree with yourself? Yeah, I do. Okay, that's good. Unlike the Northern Irish secretary today, um, I do also have a scroll fact. Okay, yep. Um, which is that several years ago, I went for drinks in Islington with Brie Larson and she was very nice. Really? Oh. Yeah. <gasps> Phil, okay, okay, you got it. <laughs> it was uh, basically after a screening of Scott Pilgrim versus the World with a Q&A with Edgar Wright, which I had done. Presumably you uh-huh. were out of time, Chris. Presumably. And, uh, and he suggested going for drinks afterwards with some of the cast members who were in the audience, including Brie Larson. Holy cow. Yeah. Whoa. That's amazing. She was very, very fun. How what did like she now? drink? Uh, it was a cocktail bar, so it was some kind of weird cocktail, but like I'm too total, so like I have no idea. Yeah. yeah. But it looked cool. So Sorry, I'm just sending a text. Uh hey Edgar, do you remember <laughs> asking Helen to do a QA of Scott Pilgrim and not me? What the fuck? Dead to me. Hugs and kisses. <laughs> I made you, I can break you. <laughs> Your pal, <laughs> Chris. Um, anyway, yes, there you go. Well, welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, we're now 25 minutes into the introduction and uh, people have already turned off. But this is a spoiler special and welcome back to the spoiler special. <laughs> and uh, we will be getting into the movie, as I said, in spoilerific detail. Third act revelations, major deaths. Are there any major deaths? Yeah, they kind of are in this one. The whole kit and caboodle. Uh, but before we do that... I'm going to do that with the film's co-directors and co-writers, Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck. Here we go. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast's Captain Marvel spoiler special podcast. I'm very podcast uncomfortable with this. Far too, oh, really? You'll love it. Honestly, by the end of it, you'll be like, I want to unburden myself. <laughs> with the film's yeah, co-writers and directors, Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck. How are you both? Very good. Happy good. to be here. Uh huh. A little yeah. nervous, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm, I guess I am a little tired of evading questions. By, by, <laughs> by the end, we'll be spoiling. We'll just be opening up about all kinds of things from our lives. Well, what I'm hoping you'll do ultimately, as well, is you'll just start spoiling Avengers Endgame and just That's go straight, trick, go right? straight into That's that. The trick, right? In fact, we, we just start so, with that. How does that end? We start talking so freely <laughs> that we start <laughs> spoiling things that we don't even know about because we don't know. I'm about. telling okay. you, they they just let us read our own script like a week ago. So. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. All right. Uh, so I'll start off with the big question, the one that's on everybody's lips. Two R.E.M. songs in this movie. <laughs> I'm a huge R.E.M. fan. Uh, that, me too. I'm surprised you even heard them. I had to, like, bury them in there just to get them past the, uh, I don't know, the censorship board. There's an R.E.M. censor? Uh, yeah. R.E.M. censorship board. Uh, yes. Yeah, it's, Michael, I, it's just the, Michael Stipe. They were my favorite band, um, you know, from, like, fifth, sixth grade growing up. Uh-huh. Okay, so um, I'll be honest, I did hear Man in the Moon, but Crush with Eyeliner passed me by a little bit. I've only seen the film once. <laughs> so, just once, where is Crush with Eyeliner? Where should we listen out for that You've got to listen closely, uh-huh. because it's in, it's in the bar scene, and it's under dialogue. So, you know, it's, it doesn't announce itself. Okay. 
Uh, interesting. It's, a, it's, it's the scene between uh, Sam and Bree talking at the bar where she's sort of doing the test on him about ah. testing whether he's a scroll or not. Okay, I got you. All right. Yeah, I will listen out for that one as well. And obviously music is a huge part of this. The soundtrack is a huge part of this as well. It's 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 very period-centric, but there are songs in there that, that, that feel very specific in terms of their use. Just a Girl being one. Can you talk about the, the use of that uh, at the end of the movie? Yeah, you know, that is actually one of the places in the movie where we tried about 3,000 different songs uh, before we arrived <laughs> on Just the Girl, which is hilarious because Just the Girl is the most obvious choice. Uh, but for a variety of reasons, we were kind of looking in different direction before we landed there. And then, and then we put it in. And there's something a little bit cheeky about it and a little bit fun about it. And we just, uh, you know... People, people were really into it. Kind of fell in love with the use there. What do mm. you think of it? Fantastic! I imagine when you're making the movie, you go, you go. This is the obvious choice. Is it too obvious? Is it too <laughs> obvious? That's the question. So let's cycle through two thousand nine hundred ninety-nine more more songs, <laughs> and then it works. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there's a little wink to the audience in there. It's uh, it's playful. No doubt. No doubt. Nice. <laughs> See, wordplay. You didn't expect that when you, when you sat down here. This is a spoiler special, and so we are going to get into it pretty much straight away. The songs were a red herring. Let's start with The Sting. Now, I spoke to Kevin Feige this week, and he tells me that The Sting was directed by the Russos. But were you involved with The Sting? Were the discussions about what else might happen at the end of the movie with, with Carol? I mean, the, the Sting is really a direct um, lead-in to their movie, I'd imagine, if I knew anything about their movie. <laughs> um, so so they, they were the ones who came up with the concept for it, and we said, that sounds awesome. They, they, they shared the script with us, and, and we said, great. So, but they, they were the ones that actually physically shot that, that little scene lit. Okay. But you did direct the, the very end tag of the movie, which I always like to talk about. I always like, there's, it's sort of, the Marvel approach to Stings is that if it's plot-centric for the MCU going forward, it's the first one. If it's a funny tag, it's the very, very end of the movie. And uh, with Goose coughing up the Tesseract, clearly a funny tag. Uh, could you talk about that? Was that something that you were playing with for, for a while? kind of came in late in the process. I have to admit it wasn't our idea, though I wish it was. Um, <laughs> Just take the it was uh, it was Mary Lovanos who works at Marvel. Um, she was somebody who we worked with early on and, and talked a lot about with in the very early development uh, of the film. And she saw the first cut of the movie. We showed her the first cut of the movie, and she had this idea, and everybody was immediately like, oh, my God, that's our end t- credit tag. Throw away all of our other ideas. This is what we have to go with. <laughs> it was pretty universal, yeah. What other ideas did you have? Was there anything that uh, that was knocking at the door? There was there was an idea, mm-hmm. but, yeah, I guess we're doing spoilers. But, yeah, there was an idea um, on the table about having Jude Law come to you know how she sends him off at mm-hmm. the end of the movie having him sort of emerge from his pod on Sakaar uh-huh. similar to uh, Thor Ragnarok <laughs> and yeah you a fighter or are you food and then have him look around and see the devil's anus behind him and wonder where the <laughs> hell am I <laughs> Uh, I suspect he's very much food <laughs> in that scenario. Uh, that would that would have been also that would have also been awesome. But uh, but Goose is in, uh, in some ways the breakout star of the movie. I think people want to see now a Goose spinoff, maybe an entire Goose cinematic universe. Uh, and the the idea that Goose is a a, a flirkin is something that comes from the comic books as well. Uh, but was that something that you always wanted to play with in in terms of this movie? 
I, I wouldn't say always, but there was yeah, there was the idea. You think it was always definitely I, always. I, I it was one of the away. it was one of the very very first ideas when we were all getting in a room together with um, you know the guys at Marvel and our co writer. We throwing ideas up on a on a blackboard uh, with no idea what the structure of the story was going to be. Just like what might we want to see from the comics in this movie? That was definitely one of like the very top things we always wanted to see in the movie. <laughs> it's so awesome in the comics. I mean, a cat who's a flurkin who has <laughs> pocket dimensions. I mean, that is. Like, there was no way that wasn't going to end up in this movie. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Don't forget the tentacles and the voracious appetite. I know. As well. I wonder what goes on inside. Like, if, like you said, if there were a spinoff, maybe we go inside the Flurkin. The pocket dimensions of the Flurkin. Like, what if, what if Talos got sucked in and then you could spend time with a Flurkin and Talos together? It's what he feared all along, was that he was going to end up in the pocket dimensions of that Flurkin. Yeah, precisely. And the uh, the idea that that, that Talos and and Skrulls just hate the Flurkin. Well, that's also from the comics. I mean, in the comics, it's uh, Rocket Rocket who's scared of the Flurkin. And we didn't have Rocket in this movie, but... We just thought it would be so funny for Talos, who's like our baddie, our villain, and, you know, he's kind of threatening this whole group of people, and then he sees this little, cute, adorable cat, and it scares the living bejesus out of him. So we thought that that was just a funny scene and a funny moment, um, and so that's why where we kind of flipped the idea and yeah. turned it into to the scrawl that's scared of Absolutely. It, it works uh, doubly well as well because obviously uh, Talos is Australian in this and they're afraid of nothing. I mean, <laughs> the 10 deadliest land snakes in the world all live in Australia. Sharks, spiders, everything that can kill you lives down in Australia. But a cat... Now that's really scary. That's that's the real payoff. Well, it's, it's also funny too because Ben Mendelsohn loves cats. I mean, he, if there's anyone who's a cat loving person, it's Ben. He was literally ben. the only actor on set who loves cats, by the way. And, and he had to he'd do some acting there to to actually express fear of the cat. Amazing. Goose does in the end take Nick Fury's eye, and uh, I think when the the second trailer came out there was a lot of speculation online that that might be the case oh really uh, yeah but uh, were there any alternatives uh, in, in the in the works at any point no it was always going to be Goose it was going to be Goose I'm trying to think various yeah. ways of it kind of being Goose mm-hmm. but um, it was always going to be Goose mm-hmm. and you you have a lot of fun playing with it as well where there's a, it feels like it feels like you dangle a lot of things towards Nick Fury's eye, or he's antagonizing Goose quite a lot during the uh, the course of the movie. And calm, 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 strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that? The, I guess that was the, the plan for the beginning. Something about that belly being rubbed, uh, Goose did not appreciate at the end of that, <laughs> when that happens. You mentioned uh, Talos there as well, and there's two major twists and reversals in this movie, which I which I loved. And one is, again, a subversion, I think, of audience expectations, or at least maybe not the audience, but me, uh, because whenever Kevin announced the Skrulls at Comic-Con a few years ago, I, in my wisdom, immediately went, aha, the Skrulls are going to be the big bads of the Marvel Cinematic Universe going forward from this point on. And that is completely not what happens, at least in this movie. And in the end, it's analogous, of course, to the refugee crisis and that's what they are they are basically refugees they're just looking for a home can you talk about that decision to wrong foot the audience and and set the scrolls up as ultimately good guys 
Yeah, uh, you know, this is so much, we knew from the beginning this was so much a movie about Carol's journey towards finding her own humanity, but part of that is also seeing the humanity in other people, even people who you don't expect to. And so the idea of having Carol go through that journey and seeing um, the unexpected humanity in Skrulls, realizing that she she's been wrong and having to face that was really powerful for us and and if we could make an audience member also have that same experience of assuming that mm. they were one thing and then and then having their expectations subverted um we thought that would be just all the more powerful Carol has Carol's been lied to essentially from the from the beginning of the movie the minute, the minute we meet her, which feeds into this the second major reversal I think with, with with Jude, in that he is someone who is manipulative towards her he controls her in a way that she doesn't really see that she doesn't really understand, and his language towards her in his, in their final confrontation is very much that almost of a abusive and controlling spouse can you can you speak to that as well is that yeah, that final conversation is great because he really, you think they're about to face off and then he, he puts his gun away and he starts trying to charm her again, you know, and yeah. it seems like that was, it's, it seems like a pattern of the relationship perhaps going back for the, the entire six years that they knew each other. And, but she's not falling for it by the end, of course. And, and, and it's so fun to just see her not play by his rules anymore. Yeah. And, and she doesn't, she doesn't need him to, to, to set the, the boundaries of how this conflict is going to play out. She can she can control them on her own. There are little motifs all the way through the film as well uh, where, where Carol is subject to and fights back against uh, you know sort of outbreaks of toxic masculinity. There's the, the biker. Uh, she, uh, you know, she, she steals his bike in the end, but he, he does that thing where, you know, oh, God, give me a smile, give me a smile. Was that something that was very important to you both to, to make this movie from a, from a feminist viewpoint? Um, we wanted to embrace everything that that Carol was, and and I think it was important to um, see things through her eyes. Uh, you know, we were just I was just on a panel with Brie, and we somebody asked about that scene, mm. and um, you know, I was saying uh, that part of why it's written in there is because women experience that all the time. It's it's almost just like, yeah. you know, you're just kind of writing dialogue. It's it's what women get told all the time. And Brie was saying that, you know, she she's had that conversation with men and men don't realize it. They don't even realize it. What, the, the smiling conversation? Yeah, or the... they don't even realize that that's, oh, is that really something that women get told all the time? It, it yeah. seems like a surprise to them. But if you talk to every woman in the room, she'll say that that's happened to her many times. And so, yeah, just having the female experience um, be part of, of what we're exploring on screen and, and have that become part of the conversation I feel like was was important but even more than that the idea of it's just another person telling her that she ought to be a certain way yeah um and so like you mentioned Jan Rog who's trying to tell her that she should control her emotions and she has to be a certain way in order to control her because mm. she is so powerful and she yeah. is so much more powerful than him it's it's the only control he has over her is to convince her that she should be different than how she is um and so just that being another step on her journey towards having to reject those voices who have said you're not good enough you're not strong enough you ought to be a different way and embrace herself and and all that that is even in her failures and even in the things that aren't perfect about her. That's what feels empowering to me about mm. the film. Carol's fascinating in the film as well because when she arrives on C-53 or <laughs> Earth as we call it, mm-hmm. she is 
she's not a fish out of water in the way that you might expect you know, from from a film like this. So she's very very confident. She immediately takes control over over destiny. She starts off in a, this investigative path. She doesn't, you know, she's got this this feeling in the back of her mind that something's not right about her past. But can you talk about that approach to Carol's character in this and the fact that you know nothing seems to phase her once she lands on Earth? Well, I, I always thought about it more as just like she's so driven as a warrior to get the scrolls to to solve the mission and, and even though something's nagging at her she's she's driven to be a good good soldier and mm-hmm. that's what's propelling her through that investigation on earth and it just so happens that getting to the bottom of why the scrolls are on earth is also getting to the bottom of her own past mm-hmm. so it becomes this moment of self discovery that really you know it, there is something personal that's nagging at her but it's also just that that drive to, you know, do what she should be doing. Yeah. Structurally, the movie's really interesting as well. You start off with with Carol already. She she has her powers six years after the, the accident and abuse her with her powers. Did you, because with a movie like this, you can go a million different ways. Did you did you play around with the structure of the film? Did you start with, was there a, a, a version where she was on Earth as the movie began? Or there was, was actually. This? I mean, we, we knew we were always going to leap ahead in kind of a Guardians of the Galaxy way. We knew there was an early draft of the script that start, you meet her in a bar on Earth talking to Maria Rambo. Actually, I'll go back even further. The, the original opening to the script was her in a simulated combat situation in, in her fighter jets mm-hmm. where she they're doing a, an exercise. And um, basically, there was a whole Top Gun-style sequence that we were even planning to shoot for a while. And then we, we realized that there was something that was just nagging at us about that sequence. And even though it was great and it was an awesome introduction to Carol and, and her human character and to Maria Rambeau as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think it would have been fun for the audience to meet them on Earth as as humans. And but what the problem with that is the audience would be so far ahead of the story. So like <laughs> we what was gonna happen was we were gonna jump ahead into the into the present, which was her on another planet, and then the rest of the movie would be, well, how'd she get there? How'd she go from being okay. a human fighter pilot to this space warrior, but you would have already known and, and viscerally felt her as a human. And so when she's uncovering her past and, and, and feeling a little freaked out by it, I think it's much more effective for the audience to be on that journey with her. So In her shoes, yeah. Totally, to be experiencing the, the uncovering of the mystery along with Carol. You can layer in the clues to her past and to the, 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 emotional, the emotional loss that she kind of feels. She, she knows that there's something up with who we ultimately to find out to be Marvell. She feels drawn towards Maria as well. Uh, again, was that something that you, you could play with as the as you edited the film in terms of introducing characters and because Maria comes into it I think fairly late into the film did you play with that as as directors I mean the first time we see Maria is earlier in the film when mm-hmm. we when the scrolls are kind of sifting through Carol's memories and we get the first glimpses of that relationship and that history and and that section really does a lot of heavy lifting in mm. terms of giving us a clue as to who this person is and why she is the way she is and what her personality was as a human and what her struggles were as a human because, you know, like that original version um, might have been, like, we don't get to spend time with her as a human. And mm. that's part of the challenge of making a movie with this 
weird structure where we come in and <laughs> and she's already super powered. We're meeting somebody who's already super powered. We don't get to see her origin. She doesn't even know her origin. And then we have to kind of discover her origin with her yep. is that we don't get that initial immediate emotional connection of somebody who we can relate to. And so that sequence going through her memories really does a lot of that heavy lifting for us. But I think it's, it's a real testament to Lashana Lynch's acting and yeah. her performance that we really don't for real meet her, um, except in those brief moments and in her memories until about halfway through the movie. And yet she still feels like such a huge, important character and so much the emotional heart of the film. Uh, and she did such a great job. We were all just like crying on set watching her performance. It's amazing. <laughs> when she auditioned for the part, she read with Brie and literally made me cry during her audition, which is you know, it, it takes a lot to make me cry. And I was like, oh, I was like hiding in the corner, like trying to wipe okay. my eyes. If you're an actor and you look over and you've made the director cry, then you know, yeah, I think I've got this job. I think she probably suspected it, but I think I talked to her about it uh, later on and she said, you know what, even if I didn't get it, that felt good. I knew, I knew, <laughs> I knew it worked. It was just allergies. It was totally fine. <laughs> that scroll memory probing device we thing. We call it the mind frack sequence. Really? Oh, so are you actually yeah. talking about the physical the, the, device yeah. she's the trapped physical, in? The physical Mind device she's yeah. trapped in. Yeah, okay, that's, that's really cool, very apt. But also structuring that must have been really, really fun. It's really freaky and disorienting, which is obviously it is for Carol, and you wanted to make it so for the audience as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, we needed some kind of narrative to hopefully lead people through it. It's such a weird sequence, and I love that in a Marvel movie we're able to do something like that. It just yeah. speaks to, to you know our executives who, if anything, they were pushing us to make things weirder instead of holding us back, which I just loved about this process. But yeah, it, it we wanted it to feel surreal and like this stream of consciousness thing where like you're kind of going through memories, but your memories are messed up. And she has this brain that's, um, you know, has has memories of two parts of her life that are all getting mixed together. And, and we had a lot, a lot of fun with um, devising that sequence and figuring out how to shoot it. Um, and it's really kind of those voiceovers of, of, the, of the scrolls of Talos yeah. that kind of lead us through it and help us understand what's going on. A very eternal sunshine of the spotless mind kind of way. That was yeah. kind of one of the references that we used mm -hmm. when we were creating that sequence. Have you seen that movie? I have indeed. Uh, I think I have. Let me, it's been raised my mind. <laughs> It's going to erase my That's memory. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> there we go. See, I was leading you there. Uh, no doubt. But this, of course, has a big old Australian accent. And uh, can you talk about the discussions you had with Ben about that? That he wanted to his, uh, keep what is his basically his own accent? or That was our idea. Once yeah. we, we first had the idea to cast him in the movie, we knew he would be playing two parts. And so we wanted him to play the, the human that he's in, inhabiting, Agent Keller, with a, an American accent. Yes. Shield agent, and then just to just to differentiate from from that accent, we wanted him to really lean into his natural Australian <laughs> accent, which is which just sounds amazing with the, all the makeup on him. Just it's just a great voice. Yeah. I think everybody is just more facile. All actors are a little bit more facile with their natural accents; yeah. they can show more emotion. Um, so, yeah, I think it was important for him to be able to kind of be as wild as Ben Mendelsohn wants to be. <laughs> I love that Nick Fury's boss looks just like Ben Mendelsohn. That's a, that's a stroke of luck, <laughs> <laughs> ultimately, as well. Fears, the idea of fears being the name that the Kree uh, know Carol as. Was that a reference in a weird way to Star Trek, the motion picture, where Voyager becomes Feager? 
or Fajur. Fajur. Uh, you, not you, can, you can confirm or deny. Not, it's, it's not, totally not to our knowledge, uh, it, it wasn't. It I'm was, actually not it, aware of that. I think it was our idea, though. That was that was Geneva. She was our writing partner on this, and um, and I think she came up with it. She came up with the idea. She didn't tell us how or where yeah. she got the idea. Maybe so she, you could be she, right. Maybe she stole it from Star. That's <laughs> what you're trying to say. No, I'm saying homaged. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's the same way Eternal Sunshine. You know, it's all fine. It's all part of one big old melting pot. It's totally fine. Nobody refers to Carol in the movie as Captain Marvel. That's clearly a very deliberate choice. It's a very strange thing for somebody to call someone. Can, can, you, can, can, you, uh, can you talk about that? You know, it, it, I don't, again, I don't think we set out to not call her Captain Marvel in the movie. We just, uh, she had to come up with the name at some point by the end of the film. We thought mm-hmm. Nick Fury at the sink doing the Marvelettes song. It's a little, like a little kind kind of tease as to what's to come and why her name is what mm-hmm. it is. And then, yeah. of course, there's there's Marvell. Yes. So she's taking the mantle from from her hero, Marvell. Yes. But, uh, of course, Nick Fury changes the pronunciation. <laughs> and then you see at the end that uh, that she was Captain Carol Danvers when he, yes. when he has her file at the very end. So, therefore, it's, it's there. Captain, if someone wants to, yeah. it's there if you want it. It's yeah. there. If you want to mispronounce it, Captain Marvel is totally fine. At the end as well, you have the revelation that the Avengers Initiative was named after Carol's uh, flight sign. Uh, where did that idea come up. from? I'm getting choked up just thinking about it. Because <laughs> we haven't been allowed to talk about it for so long. It's the boxed in emotions. You see, this spoiler therapy is a good thing, right? Yeah. Hey, where did that, that come from, the idea at the, at the end that uh, Carol is inadvertently responsible for the name of the Avengers? Um, I mean, the whole movie is about Captain Marvel inspiring Nick Fury to mm-hmm. to change his whole outlook and to, you know, make S.H.I.E.L.D. now a place that can deal with an entirely unexpected world that he didn't know existed before. So in a way, the whole movie is about how Captain Marvel inspires him to form the Avengers so, so we just wanted to make it very specific at the end. Uh, but it was a very late decision to not actually see it on the screen. Okay. Like we did shoot him actually writing the Avenger initiative oh, really? on okay. the screen. And, and it just felt like we let didn't it, need to see it. Let we it hang could... there. Let it hang there. And the fans will know what it is. And anyone watching the movie who doesn't know what he's typing will lean over and ask somebody else and they'll explain Yes. It. And of course, it's a, it's a very conscious decision on, on a part of you guys to finish the movie on that shot uh, of Nick. You, you don't end with Carol herself. Can you talk about that? Were, were, and again, were there iterations where you did finish with Carol, where we get to see where she goes with the, the squirrels? Um, I, I think that our intention was to give you, give you the sense of where she's going to, you know, help end the war and find the squirrels a home mm-hmm. without actually, you know, seeing her land on a planet somewhere and mm-hmm set up a civilization. I feel like we can use our imaginations as to, you know, that big mission and how that might exactly play out. So so that is where we wanted to leave Captain Marvel. And, and it just felt like the weight of her inspiring the Avengers and inspiring basically this this entire world that we've come to know and love as as Marvel enthusiasts over the years felt like the right way to tell the story. So in a way, we feel like we are leaving it with Carol, but it's about 
the future that she is inspired at the end of the movie. Yes. Um, is, is that where the idea came from to set it in the mid-90s and to set it before the MCU really began in, in earnest, obviously, with, with, with Tony Stark and, and Iron Man? Yeah, it's an origin story for... For, for the whole thing. The whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah, and that's something that Kevin Feige and the Marvel team, basically, when we came on board, they said, we want, we want this to be... We want her to be inspiring Nick Fury to create the Avengers by the end of this movie. 1995 is a very specific setting for the film. We see a true lies standee having his head blown off. Uh, is that a diss of that movie? Or is no. It- <laughs> Are you kidding me? We, lo- we were inspired by all those movies, all those Schwarzenegger yeah. films from the 90s. Yeah, yeah. Terminator 2 was a big reference. James Cameron is, a, uh-huh. of course, an action legend. I, I think it's, I, you know, I worked in a video store in 1995, and I remember those true lies standees. So that's it was more nostalgia than anything. And, and of course, she has, to, she has to blow somebody's head off of that standee it's going to be Arnold or Jamie Lee Curtis. I think we just had to go with Arnold. Well, it just shows how much more powerful she is. You know, she's blown Arnold Schwarzenegger's head off in the first 20 minutes of the film. And the only way to go from there is up. That's true. I, <laughs> Credentials well, established. Just a, a little bit of insider info about that is that we really wanted it to be the mask because of the green head. So the idea that she thinks it's a scrawl. Oh, uh, okay. So we initially tried to get that, but they wouldn't clear it. The, the, so. Jim, Carrey, the Jim Carrey film from yes. the same year. And yeah. uh, that would have been great because it looks like a scroll. But uh, I think that studio was uneasy with us blowing up. <laughs> and Fair to enough. Arnold's credit, he was a good sport. He, he signed off on allowing us to do that. Oh, that's amazing. Well done, him. And uh, just really, really quickly, the Tesseract plays a big part in the creation of Carol, the creation of her powers as well. There's a revelation, of course, that Lawson is indeed Marfell. That's another big, uh, big uh, rug pulling twist. At what point did you know the Tesseract was going to play a big part in the creation of Carol and her and her powers and the revelation of Marfell as well? You knew that something needed to give Carol her powers, and I think that we were at a point when when we were brainstorming with the team at Marvel and just like, why create a whole new thing? Like we have all we have all this powerful stuff that's already in the Marvel universe. Do we really need to create a whole new energy source for her to gain her powers? We we have some to choose from. And and so we decided to go with the Tesseract. And then I forget what your second question was. No, nobody likes remember. nobody likes saying Psyche Magnetron again and again and again. So. <laughs> Psyche that's, Magnetron. Uh, that's from her origin story from the yes, comics. Yeah. It was the Psyche Magnetron that gave her her powers. Of course, yes. So the, t- the Tesseract, was that, that just lying around Marvel's offices? Or was that something that you know you just picked up and grabbed? I mean, in, in, in MCU continuity, at this point it is, obviously it's been found oh, yeah. by, by S.H.I.E.L.D., I guess. Yeah. Was that something that you had to she just pull it off the shelf somewhere? Yeah, our thought... Our thought was that, yeah, she, that they had gotten this thing, but they didn't know anything about it. And they just kind of had it lying around somewhere at S.H.I.E.L.D. And, and she, was able to, um, she was able to use it for her to create her Lightspeed Engine at Pegasus. And the idea of um, her taking this thing that only her as like an alien would even know had all this power and yes. figure out how to harness it. Yeah, that's the idea. Mm-hmm. And, and, returned. and the idea that she was ultimately Marvel was that something that you had begged into the script from the beginning, or no? That was another late-breaking idea from Ms. Anna Bowden here. Uh, we, yeah, what was the impulse I for that guess, idea? I think that you know we initially had a separate figure being the supreme intelligence, um, mm-hmm. and then it just it felt like to to bring it together, somebody from her past, 
that she knew and she admired, but she didn't know who it was because she had that part of her herself missing. To have it be connected to her origin and have it be connected to her hero felt like an obvious idea that should have been in there from the very beginning. <laughs> um, so it was just one of those things where all of a sudden, like, I woke up from a nap and I was like, what the hell are we doing? Why are these two separate people? And uh, I called Ryan. I'm like, am I crazy to think that, that we should make them the same actor? And he's like, no, that seems like, why didn't we think of that four months ago? Um, <laughs> and there we go. There we go, indeed. Fantastic. Uh, I think I have about another 843 questions to ask you guys, but you're being taken away. It's been an absolute okay. pleasure. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Thank yeah. you so really much. Nice chatting with you. I do feel better. See, <laughs> <laughs> spoiler therapy. Every director should try it. Thank you, guys. All right, Thank thanks. you. All right, so that was Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, and we have tons of listener questions about this movie, most of which address the areas I think that we would like to discuss, so we'll get into that fairly quickly. But before we do so, let's have a general discussion about Captain Marvel and about our feelings about the movie. We've all seen it twice now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ben, myself and Terry have just come out of screenings, staggered into the daylight, and I have to say I enjoyed this movie much more second time around. Yeah. First time around, I don't know, I felt, I said this on the regular podcast, and I still feel this to an extent, I felt that at times it was a little bit flat, some of the dialogue was on the nose a little bit, that the action scenes, there aren't a lot of them, and they didn't really pull their weight for me in terms of the general MCU. And also it didn't, it lacked something new visually in the way that Ant-Man, Doctor Strange and Black Panther brought new things to the MCU. The second time around... I thought it was a bit of a blast, to be honest. Once I knew where it was going, once I got used to its weird rhythms, and the first half of the movie is particularly structurally very interesting, mm. I could focus on the character work, I could focus on the relationship between Nick Fury and, and Carol Danvers, and uh, I thought it was terrific. Terry, what did you make of it? So, I agree with you to a certain degree. The first time I saw it, I was quite bamboozled by, which is not a word I use very often actually and now I realise why um, <laughs> for the first half of the film because as you say it's not a traditional origin story structure that has kind of split people I think I found it just quite overwhelming because it does pull from kind of multiple comic book runs and it's not a straightforward kind of narrative because you have to learn about the scrolls, the Cree, what that is. Yeah. It drops you straight into Halla. You obviously join her when she has her powers, even though she's not in control of her powers and hasn't realised their full potential. And then the second half for me really is where it kind of hit its stride. And mm. by the final act, I was wanting to stand on my chair and weep and punch the air at the same time. Mm. Now, what I think... Don't, don't do that, by the way. I, I won't. I mean, I should, but I won't. But I think one of the things for me is one of the criticisms I've seen that I think is desperately unfair that I just want to get into straight away because it's been <laughs> driving me mental is there's been lots of talk about the lack of kind of character arc and how she, because she is kind of, you know, already powerful to a certain extent when you meet her, that people don't feel like there was a big journey for her character to have. And I think it's it's it can be subtle in places, but I absolutely love the fact that she is kind of flawed all the way through, not in a kind of a, a kind of significant way, but just in a really human way. Yeah. Even before she knows she's human, she is human, if mm -hmm. you see what I mean. And I thought the actually the arc and it really hit me the second time I saw it and Helen really nails it in her review which is when she becomes and realises her power 
and how she actually channels that and accesses it through emotion, which all the way through the film she's been told will be her undoing. And as she learns about herself, and I did feel like she's almost a bit of a blank page at the beginning, and that's because she has no idea who she is. She has no idea anything about her past, about her life, other than what she's been told since she's been on Hallow for the last six years. And watching her find herself and her place in the world... I just found extraordinary the second time it really hit me and I actually found it much more emotional the second Mm -hmm. time than I did the first time. I would totally agree with that. I think that's true of a lot of Marvel movies actually that they smooth out um, the second time and and the emotion hits you much more. I mean we were discussing this before Chris but I think there's an element of going in the first time sort of looking for everything excited about everything focusing on the minutiae and and not really almost almost not processing I think the emotional angles of the film. Well yeah that's absolutely my experience because mm. I, I usually do the spoiler special interviews and I'm just I'm totally focused on that especially if I know I'm only going to see the film once or something like Infinity War I knew I was going to write the review and I yeah. knew I didn't have a lot of time to do it and you've got to focus on what's happening um, and, it, and it does smooth out the second time and it does I think hit you a lot harder um, and I totally agree with all of that Terry I think that uh, there is an arc I mean there is you can see elements of her Carol Danvers personality even in the opening scene mm. you know where she is kind of laughing joking trying to kind of assert herself almost against Yon Rog um, not in an adversarial way at that point but in a sort of trying to figure out who she is and then that just builds and builds through the film and there is absolutely an arc when she decides I- I'm through with letting people tell me when I'm good enough because mm. um, that is I mean you know Thor doesn't radically change personality over the course of that first film no. um, he is still Thor he just learns a lesson about you know responsibility or whatever else it's I would say similar here she, she doesn't radically change personality she just realises that she's done asking for permission which is cool <laughs> I think as, as well as, as Steve says in Infinity War <laughs> yeah exactly I think as well we're so used to origin stories being about people kind of gaining power or learning to use power and that's not what this film is she already she already has that power and sure she realizes the full potential of it later in the film but it's about her learning to um, well learning about her humanity it's a, an amnesiac story it's her learning her, her who she is who what her personality is where she comes from and i think we're less used to seeing that as being the the kind of character journey in these sorts of films but i think that comes through really strongly especially second time around there are several key relationships in the film. Uh, for me, there's a really key one is the controlling relationship between Carol and Jon Rog. I wrote down what she says this time around because mm. I was very uh, conscious of the fact that it's a big twist. Yeah. It's a big twist. I don't think anyone really saw that coming. Certainly didn't see the other big twist. We'll talk about that mm. in due course coming as well. But uh, Jude Law's Jon Rog is essentially the bad guy of the film. And he uses language towards Carol especially towards the end which I feel is very deliberately chosen it's very controlling language and she gets to say something back to him Uh, she says I have nothing to prove to you at the end but let's also remember what she does directly before that right so somebody was saying oh you know that's quite overt is it too heavy handed that speech 
But hilariously, she cuts him off. I love that she cuts him off. So he's going, prove yourself, show me. And he's halfway through shouting this at her and she just launches him like miles. I loved that because, A, you know, we spend our lives being interrupted as women and B, Sorry, Jane, can I just stop you there? Um, I thought it was a tremendously moving moment. Carol finally reaching her own emotional apotheosis, uh, if you will. Uh, It was really, really great. Uh, Helen, you must have also thoughts on this. I'm not sure Terry had finished. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Terry. Please continue. God, when's James, where is James Dyer when you need him? You don't want James Dyer on this podcast. <laughs> but I, I did love that. And I loved that she undercut that entire thing, mm. which could have seemed heavy handed if he'd have completed his speech and it had been done completely yeah. straight face. Yeah. The fact that she launched him mid-sentence. I've, I, I saw it um, with an audience this morning and everybody just like pissed themselves at yeah. that moment. Yeah. I mean, I think the uh, first of all, the casting of Jude Law is is superb for that role because he does he he is capable in his in his life of both those roles of being the incredibly likable, genial, extremely attractive, obviously <laughs> mentor figure. Um, don't, and, don't and objectify also, Jude Law, um, Helen. Um, don't objectify. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> Anyway, um, but he, he is he is capable of being that that sort of you know mentor, that kind of shining personality that yeah. everybody just wants to be like. Like Dumbledore. Um, yeah, um, and also he's capable, obviously, of being an absolute bastard on screen. So I think this was a really clever piece of casting because mm. um, he doesn't even change his performance particularly between the two, but he works. <laughs> brilliantly both ways and I love that Yeah, it's interesting when you watch the film a second time around with knowledge of the yes. big twist yeah. that mm. everything he does is yeah. so shady and cagey <laughs> and when she's on Earth or sorry, sorry planet C53 and she's going hey do you know about this Lawson person he's like no what? <laughs> what are you talking about Lawson I don't know any Lawson anyway it's at the time I have to go I'm late for my gym appointment you're on a spaceship um, God, space um, gym space, do they have space gyms up here but even when they were on Hallet together and it was, you know, that mental relationship at the beginning, he says to her, nothing is more dangerous in a warrior than emotion. And the statements mm-hmm. he makes to her, and it's the point you just made, Chris, which is he's doing it all along, but he's mm. doing it within kind of a supposedly supportive relationship. Yeah. But actually, when you watch it a second time with the knowledge of who yeah. he is tr- truly... It's classic controlling language yeah. and behaviour all the way through. And actually, you know, it, it really struck a chord for me when she says, I am Carol, my name is Carol Danvers, when she's with the Supreme Intelligence at the end, says, my name is Carol Danvers, a single tear runs down her face. And that for me was really significant because I immediately let back to him saying that was a weakness. And in that moment, she was obviously accessing that and it was her greatest strength. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we've heard that so many times. That's the thing. That's mm. why we just let it go first time. We've heard so many mentors saying you must control your emotions you must master your emotions you must you know do this that and the other I didn't particularly register it at the start mm. of the film I didn't particularly of, wasn't surprised by it it's quite subtly insidious isn't mm. it because yeah when you see it the first time and you see their dynamic that he is her mentor that that like you said that's how we've always seen mentors speaking but second time around it's you can't not see the creepiness mm. yeah. of it in in Absolutely. yeah the, like you said a very specific phrasing that he uses and telling her um he's kind of continuing to shield her from who she is mm. and that is human i was going to say in the um scene that terry was talking about before where he's saying come on fight me without your powers and stuff that that reminded me very much of um, angry men on Twitter <laughs> when they kind of double down in a, an argument and they're saying, yes. "No, no, come on, come back, keep yeah. keep fighting." And it's like, "What the fuck? Leave me alone! I've got like 
why are you keeping on yeah. coming at me like this yes. is this is done i don't owe you anything and i really liked her kind of turning just blasting him away like no you can't tell me not not to use my powers like just leave me alone yon rog would absolutely without a shadow of a doubt try to give captain marvel zero percent on rotten tomatoes yeah. There's, there's, no, there's yeah. no question. He is absolutely the sort of person that thinks this movie was made to antagonise him. <laughs> and there are so many of them. There's so many of well, them. Well, yeah, because when I think about actually when she puts him puts him in the um, plane slash spaceship and sends him back he's so to Ella, and he's like, please don't do this to me. Please. I can't go back empty-handed. And she's like, you will not go back empty-handed. I have a message for you. And he's so broken and so and, and so emasculated at that point, yeah. right? Because yeah. he's been, he'd gone on this mission. When they'd left the Star Force, he was the bold leader who she was completely in awe of. And he, she sends, she fires the engine with her fist, sends him off back to Helen. And you can, ima- I was imagining this scene the other end where the little comes yes. off, and he's like, um, <laughs> but he awkward. Con- he'd concoct some sort of story, wouldn't he? Yeah. He's just like, oh, you should, oh, I should have seen it. I was so close to defeating her, and then last minute something happened. But I was a hero, rather than, oh, God, I'm so sorry, I got my ass kicked. Uh, but I'm glad that they um, they actually kept him on the board so he got that, sort of, that mm. ultimate humiliation rather than just you know, the, the cheap and easy death which is so often the out yeah. in these things. Carol's got the inhibitor at the beginning. Mm. And it's all part of his controlling behaviour towards her, his controlling language towards her. But the inhibitor is obviously a physical manifestation of that. They tell her that her powers have come from them. What we give you could be taken away. Yep. And she learns to get past that. So my question is, it's in three parts. My question is, <laughs> why did the Kree keep her around in the first place? Was it A, to study her? Was it B, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer, mm-hmm. maybe? Uh, or C... They saw her as a weapon. They saw her as a weapon, I think it's all three, actually. I think um, they're still trying to figure out Marvel's system marvel's power source she's clearly been exposed to it she still may you know be able to access it in some fashion she might lead them to the tesseract she might lead them to the tesseract she um she's you know kind of not a threat without her memory um because she doesn't have any reason not to trust them she doesn't have any reason not to believe all these manipulative lies that that she is told and she does have power she could be useful in their war if if their whole thing is you know essentially the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one mm. um then you know it makes sense that you would take up this tool and use it yeah and she if you notice the moment he decides to take her back and not kill her is when he sees that energy pulsing in her body yeah. and you see the lines of it and i think at that moment he thinks maybe that it will in some way just say help to locate the tesseract at least she is a physical the closest physical thing they have to the core at that point and i mm. think that's why they take her yeah i feel like as well in a in that kind of creepy way that yon rog maybe feels a bit of ownership over her because it's her blood his, his blood, blood sorry yeah. his cree mm. blood that's in her oh my god that's and a, i think as, as well that's that's that he that's the biggest controlling factor isn't yeah. it that's mm. the most invasive thing that's literally his blood in her veins mm. i hadn't even thought of that well that's creepy i think he just sees that as a kind of a reason to keep her around that she is an extension of him that he can that he can use and that there's yeah. a bit of him in her that he doesn't want to let go i mean there's a lot of him in her think about it his blood is running it's pumping yeah. through her veins mm-hmm. yeah like, he's, he's trained her to fight mm-hmm. um you know he's been her mentor presumably pretty much every day since she woke up mm-hmm. um it's that's the impression i get anyway they you know she confides in him to the extent she confides in anyone mm-hmm. um they're clearly close you know that scene on the sort of uh Halla underground um <laughs> you know it's, it's it's closeness it, it mm. appears to be closeness okay 
The other question I have about Carol and Decree, and I've seen this twice now, and I don't quite understand why at the end they have her commune with the Supreme Intelligence again. Now, is this... Because at this point, they have everything they want. They have they have her. They have the Tesseract. Mm. So why do they do that? I think it might go back to it being a, a weapon uh, issue. And I think also, if you're a Supreme Intelligence, it might well be just about acquiring information, understanding why she's done what she's done. There might be an element of sort of debriefing just to prevent such occurrences in future. But there's there's an element of, of gloating. I wondered if mm. it was literally just gloating, like, mm. ha, 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 I'm the supreme intelligence. You are just a human. You thought you could stand up against us, but look where you are. It, I mean, it could be that as well, which is slightly less... Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> slightly less commendable. Yeah. Really. yeah. It's the third Marvel movie out of the last five in which the main character gets their confidence and powers back after communing with someone in essentially some sort of spirit world. So it happens to Black Panther, Thor Ragnarok, mm. and now this one as well. Get some new ideas, Marvel. <laughs> well, at least they're not having large ships hovering over major cities anymore. So, you know. Or people losing arms. Yeah, so yeah. many. <laughs> okay. Should we get some uh, listener questions? Should we go, go on to that? Yeah. Let's do it. All right, so I'm going to take these in the order in which they were sent to me. So they're going to be jumping all over the place and maybe we'll use them as jumping off points to talk about other stuff, which means maybe not get to your actual question, but let's give it a go. So this first one comes from at Eddie3429. Four scrolls arrive on Earth, but we only know the fate of three. The one who dies in the car with Fury, the science guy, and Talos. Did I miss one, or is there still a scroll out there? Now, with this question in mind, I watched the film with a fine tooth comb. Mm. Shut up, you can watch films with fine tooth combs. Mm. Totally fine. And I think he might be onto something here. Mm. I, I can only account for three. Yeah, I, I read that before I went in for the second screening, and I counted, and we are short a scroll. Uh oh! Uh This is where the one shots come in, and you have like the scrolls, like Great Earth Holiday, having like a like a Cali beach holiday. Just like I'm out. You'll you can all sort this. Yeah, I'm just here for the. I'm just looking for somewhere to hide out. This will do. I want that. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, right. We're one scroll down. Definitely. I mean, it, it was one of the surfers. They're still surfing on the yeah. bay somewhere. They loved it, yeah. But did anyone else feel heartbroken by the science guy getting it? Yeah. That, honestly, I felt really moved his by ne- that. His name, I believe, was Nexos. Nexos. Uh, See, I've, I've I, reduced him to science guy. I won't even give him dignity in death. I accidentally booked a closed caption screening last night. Uh, so. <laughs> oh, really? I know how to spell everything now. Everything. <laughs> Fantastic. Atlas, two T's. Two T's? A-T-T hyphen L-A-S-S. <laughs> You're welcome. World. Amazing. Yon Rog. Yon Rog. Go and spell that. Y-O-N hyphen R-O-G-G. Damn it, you're good. <laughs> Bronchar. That's just as it sounds, but with yeah. a hyphen. All right. Korath. That's just as it sounds with no hyphen. Fuck. Uh, yes, Matthew Maher plays Norex. That's exciting, isn't it? Mm. That's good. Well good done. For him. Yeah, poor old science guy. All right, so let's talk about the scrolls because this there leads us on nicely to the scrolls and the film's major twist, yeah. I would mm. say, which is that whenever the scrolls were announced at Comic Con a few years ago by Kevin Feige, I, mm-hmm. I think you did as well. I Don't was... rewrite history for me, okay, O'Hara. I mean, you can think what you want. Um, that, I could think what you want. Oh, bloody hell. No, because I'll, I'll, I'll get to it. Because I'll get into it in a minute. November 19th. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> Uh, anyway. January 1st, January 2nd, January 3rd, oh, January 4th, January 5th. 
Keep keep talking, Terry. Keep talking. <laughs> January seventh. January. Oh no, your microphone's gone down. That's so weird. <laughs> I am Yon Rog. Uh, anyway, anyway, let's get some control back in this podcast, shall we? What uh, male control? Yes, ideally. When the uh, scrolls were announced at Comic Con a few years ago, I presumed, and many many others did. Helen is taking the fifth in this one. That they might be the next big bads of the MCU because they're baddies in the comics and they have this incredible shape shifting potential. And that means, and there's a big old crossover called Secret invasion where a lot of Marvel heroes turn out to be Skrulls and it's all, you know, it all kicks off. And uh, that still may happen, mm. but it's not happening as a result of this film because they're goodies. So my my view and my memory is that when that was, I, I acknowledged the possibility of that, but I really hate that idea. I really don't like the Secret War idea. I don't want half the people I've fallen in love with over the last 10 years to turn out to be not who I thought they were. I find that tedious and a little bit rug-pulling in a way that isn't emotionally or you know narratively satisfying. That's my issue with the scrolls, and that always has been, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. So I am delighted by this twist. I'm genuinely delighted by it, because I just don't want to the whole, ho-ho, so-and-so was actually a scroll, and now somebody else is Captain America or whatever. Like, whatever, just <laughs> tedious. No, not having it. I'm also genuinely delighted that there were two theories going round about this film in advance. One of them was this sort of fairly sensible theory that, you know, the scrolls were coming and then we'd have some kind of secret war play out, yeah. which appears at the moment to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And then the other one was that Nicholas Fury would lose his eye to the cat. And I am so pleased that that's the one that's right, <laughs> because it's just bananas and I love it. Yeah, I, I guess so. I guess so. Okay, technically... Not a cat. Uh, it's I, true, a flurkin. A flurkin. That mother flurkin, as he says, <laughs> artfully skirting the boundaries of a PG-13. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever I saw the trailer, I did do a poll on Twitter. How did you think Nick Fury was going to lose his eye? And the over the overwhelming, the runaway winner in that poll was accident in a dildo factory. So I'm surprised to see Marvel didn't go down that route. And they went instead for Goose scratching his eye out, which was fun. Hmm. But that's uh, that's correct. The scrolls. There is every chance that the fourth scroll, who's still on Earth, might get so pissed off that he launches his own one-man secret invasion <laughs> of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's a possibility. Uh, there are there is reference, of course, to thousands of other scrolls mm. as yeah. well. And you could say it's cream misinformation, but they do seem to be under the impression that scrolls are invading and infiltrating planets. Possibly that's just because they're looking for homes, but also there might be just a rogue element. Yeah, I mean, I I rewatched it. When I saw it the second time, I was really keen to see, especially Ben Mendelsohn as Talos, whether there was any kind of hint that he was there a switch and was there a switch and bait right so mm. was there was he presented as the villain at first and actually then there's a big kind of change in his character there actually wasn't and when you rewatch it knowing he's not the bad guy yeah. it kind of all makes sense and that i have to say the way they played the scrolls and the way they used humor mm. I, I mean it totally wrong footed me because i was just expecting them to be the big bad and that was it and partly it's because he's australian i'm sorry but it just sounds funny in a when, coming <laughs> out of a guy dressed head to toe in he's, green prosthetic yeah. He's basically an asparagus, yeah, isn't it's he? It's hilarious. Yeah. It's really funny. Asp- <laughs> are asparaguses Australian? Well, no, but the asparaguses are roughly that colour and sort of bit and texture and such. Do you think his pee smells of scroll? Yeah. <laughs> oh, very good. Yes. Very good. And, you know, the, the, that whole thing with the science goes, how's that whole scene in Maria's house where he's like... <laughs> 
Sinorbit was that so hard? And he's like, I thought you was your science. I have that whole the dialogue there, and I yeah. don't, I agree with you, Chris. I don't think the script entirely landed every single time, and I don't think every joke landed mm. either. But the charm and the warmth and the wit in that scene was just brilliant. He's and, so good. And the tonal shift, like Ben Mendelsohn when he's reunited with, um, when Talos is reunited with his family. Mm. Yeah, proper choked up. It yeah. was. I think he's a remarkable actor, and I actually think this really sh- showed him to his greatest kind of range and all of the stuff he's capable of. Precisely, especially after a series of rote bad guy roles and the likes of Ready Player One, Ready and obviously Player Krennic one. and Rogue yeah. One, and other films that didn't have the word one in the title. But um, the Robin Hood. I mean, he's probably the best thing in Robin Hood, yeah. but still, it's, oh, it's one a, of those. It's a terrible thing, though. Yes. It's a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, and this gives him a chance. He's so good in Mississippi Grind. If you yeah. have not seen. Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck's previous movies they're all fantastic yeah. but Mississippi Grind I'm Phenomenal. evangelical yeah. about mm. go and check it out it is incredible he's so tragic in that as well he's like, so, just, mm. you're just, your heart breaks for him and oh you're just terrified for him in every single scene it's just <laughs> incredible but but yeah I also loved I mean the, the very basic accent switching in this from Australian yeah. As, a, yeah. as, a, as an alien to um, yeah. to standard American as Keller Fury's boss how, uh, how nice that uh, Fury's boss looks just like Ben Mendelsohn <laughs> 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 what a stroke of luck that was <laughs> Terry's right second time around watching it knowing that they were the good guys I did exactly the same mm. thing like they're presented as bad guys by Yon Rog that bastard and the Kree those bastards and uh, but they're actually never doing anything overtly evil with the possible exception of the mind memory scrubby thing uh, which, which they do to yeah. Carol but isn't that because they ultimately they're desperate the to be reunited and yeah. to find a home and so they and actually we don't know if they were planning to harm her it was uh, just trying to glean information and when you see it through that perspective mm. you're and, and you think what would you do as a refugee trying to find your home trying to be reunited with your family would you go to those lengths of course you would it felt like a very specific line later in the film as well talking about people at the border mm. and I really enjoyed the fact that especially between this and Black Panther you've got Marvel films that are still hugely entertaining, they're blockbusters they're fast and they're funny but they are engaging with real world issues and I thought that switch with the scrolls of that um, yeah, the, their positioning as refugees and seeing though the potential of those characters as shapeshifters instead of being used for evil as something to try and camouflage and stay yeah. safe i found really unexpectedly powerful the first time around especially i went into it expecting kind of political stuff about carol and as a feminist character and as a, a feminist story but i think the the refugee story through the scrolls mm. um was something that they didn't need to do but i thought worked really really mm. well there is there is a thread that runs through these movies. I mean, we talked about an awful lot on these spoiler specials. That these movies, that the MCU is quite political and is quite liberal as well. The viewpoint of the MCU is quite liberal, and it, it was incredible the way that the scrolls were framed, not just as refugees, but as refugees who have been painted by one domineering force to be evil, the danger on your doorstep, literally That's terrorists. Build a wall, terrorists. That's yeah. build a wall, and obviously you have the current incumbent. He's got some sort of flirking on his head. I don't quite know what the <laughs> hell is going on there. But the current incumbent, the current president of the United States of America is using that sort of language mm. to terrify people about refugees and about people coming into the country. And it's fascinating that the that the that this, this movie and this series of movies is coming down 
I would say ultimately history will say on the side of right. Yeah, I agree. It's weird, isn't it? Because a lot of people say that superheroes are inherently fascist, that because they have this power and they have the power to intervene and basically any time they don't intervene, it's by their mercy, not by mm. your right. Um, that that's a sort of inherently fascist concept. But what's interesting to me is, is as you say, almost unfailingly, these, these films take a very much more liberal viewpoint. Um, typical bloody Hollywood, eh? Left-wingers all. <laughs> but it, it makes them, you know, watchable and bearable. And and I do think it's it's interesting. You know, you, you can take a lot from it. You do get right-wing people who occasionally take the sort of distrust of government angle from these stories and they see that as their thing. But I think they're demented, really, um, because it does tend to come down to freedom. It does tend to come down to looking out for the little guy looking out for the person who's weaker than you and trying to protect them from forces that would crush them, Yeah, um, as in this case. Yeah, I think as well it, it tallies with um, the sort of limited amount of, of Kree stuff that's been in the in the Marvel Universe so far, mm. a.k.a. Ronan, mm, the accuser yeah. in, in Guardians, who is, he's a fundamentalist. Mm. Like, that's who the Kree have always been. And you go into this story, um, if you have a bit of prior knowledge, knowing that, that Captain Marvel's powers are of Cree origin um and that you see it from from a different viewpoint but actually it tallies the same that mm. that the Cree are are fundamentalists mm. and that the scrolls are actually just being painted as, as something mm. else. It's interesting, isn't it, here, that her, her powers kind of aren't at the same time this time. Her powers come from her encounter with Marvell, mm-hmm. um, yeah. but they're from the Tesseract. They're not from yes. the Cree mm-hmm. blood. That may have, I don't know, given her some enhancements, but that's not the main source of her power. So that is an interesting change. I mean, I was reading about Cree um, this week and something I hadn't really picked up from the comics I've read, but the idea that the bluer the Cree, the more sort of pure-blooded aristocratic so there's a whole idea of kind of you know it's the kind of Voldemort thing of pure bloods mm. uh, in the Cree yeah. society I wonder if that fits into Jon Rog a bit who obviously isn't blue no. um, whereas you know Ronan is a bright bright blue I think there's there's maybe an element of that in him trying to prove himself as well yeah because it's it's it there is still kind of some nuance and grey area right between mm. the squirrels and the creeds because Ronan's radical and he's positioned as being radical and actually there's definitely something in the Cree which is power at any cost right mm. they're obsessed with the acquisition of power and the scrolls are generally speaking about survival yeah. but there is definitely grey area on that and I I was really surprised by the switch up actually with how she got her powers that wasn't what I was expecting mm. to happen narratively and was I thought really mm. interesting in terms of it it she does have that blood but she didn't actually get it from a direct fusion with Cree DNA yeah I think it's um it's interesting about the Infinity Stones because then I was thinking about them and how we now have several Avengers who owe their powers, their start, their life maybe to Infinity Stones, Carol, obviously Vision and Scarlet Witch, assuming they survive uh, Endgame and come back. But it's it's kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, that's, I guess, the nature of, of Infinity Stones. They can give mm. you all of this power and they remain infinite. They, they're not touched by it. I don't think uh, there's a single greater illustration of how powerful Carol is in the entire movie. And I include the bit where she destroys a Kree ship. <laughs> then her just nonchalantly picking up the Tesseract and then just throwing it up in the air and catching it again. Uh, she almost does like tricks with it, like rolling yeah. it down her shoulder <laughs> and along and spinning it in her finger like a basketball. Uh, because this is something that we've seen people... It doesn't end well for people who just pick up the Tesseract, yeah. a, uh, a la the Red Skull. And maybe that indicates that it suggests why... It's fascinating watching movies are made long after other movies try and kind of fill in the blanks and make the pieces mm. fit 
but it kind of does give you an indication of why Ronan the Accuser is jonesing so much for an Infinity Stone in Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm. Once he realizes what mm. he's bringing to Thanos, he goes, well, mm. hang on, I'm going to keep this for myself and I'm going to become the one of the great powers in the universe. Fuck you, you purple prick. <laughs> Can I just say, it's two films now we've had Lee Pace as Ronan the Accuser. He hasn't actually accused anyone of doing anything yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think it's more of a... Like, for example, there's a there's a position in the British law world called the Queen's Remembrancer. I don't think he has to remember much for her. So I think it might be something like that. You don't think... I mean, I'm not sure what he would remember. Brian, did you take my milk? I had milk in the fridge here and now it is gone. I'd even written Ronin on it. What have you done? Brian, you bastard. Jack Hughes. <laughs> Jack Hughes, have you taped over my celebrity death match? They still have this very big in the Cree homeworld. Uh, right, let's have another question now. This is the second question, Christ. Um, at Benny Mill asks, I wanted to ask about the music. I thought there was no clear reason for shifts between cinematic score and 90s bangers. If well, it, there is, because then you get to have 90s bangers. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's the question answered. Um, <laughs> how do you think the soundtrack compares to classic scores like Winter Soldier or purposeful pop riffs like Guardians? I mean, I loved it, but I... It, I was yeah. born in 1979, therefore that, it, you know, it's Ben, don't look at me, because I'll dissolve into that's, ash. That's a year, Ben. <laughs> yeah. Before the 1990s. Okay. Before the dark times. Before 1991. Before the okay. empire. And Are you like, born in 1991? Get the fuck out. Get and, out. But, and I do have to say, I did, when I was watching it the second time, I was looking for maybe kind of more complex narrative reasons for song choice and, and where exactly they fell in the film I couldn't spot anything other than being a kind of empowering fuck you yeah uh, feminist anthems some may say yeah um, but I didn't mind that I quite enjoyed that I don't I didn't need there to be a greater subtext and I also think that would have you know the people who who maybe do feel or worry that the film has some kind of you know really preachy over yeah. kind of messaging I think cobbing in a load of like heavy-handed narrative songs which just kind of back up the stuff that's already happening on on screen and in the script would have been too much it needed Annie Lennox's No More I Love Yous <gasps> I that love that been... so much <laughs> language is leaving me We'll auto tune Terry. It'll, it'll all be fine. Uh, I, I, I thought the soundtrack was really good. Uh, as I've said, as you heard in the interview with Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, there's two REM songs in there. I am more than happy. That is fantastic. Hey, is this an episode of Are You Talking? Are no. You Talking? Uh, REM re me re me. No, literally no. I think no one it is. is. No, I think uh-huh. it is. I'm Crin- no, no, that's not. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. I I really loved the needle drop moment of um, of no doubt yes. kicking in. Especially that felt like that's the one sequence. There is '90s bangers through the film, but often there is some kind of situation, or it's on yeah. the car yeah, and stereo. In the whereas that is a very specific. It's not playing. The jukebox has been destroyed, but it, that is such a specific choice in the lyrics and what mm. that song means the sort of I've had it up to here Carol has snapped yes as the kids say it's interesting isn't it that that wouldn't necessarily be her music unless it all played on the way up to the base with Nicholas Fury in the car I don't know why I'm calling him Nicholas today. yeah, anyway. yeah. Um, well that's wait. because you're a <gasps> I'm a scroll, scroll. <laughs> uh, no unless she, literally unless that all played 
in the car journey she probably hasn't particularly heard it she left in 1989 1989. in the same way that the Guardian soundtrack came from the 70s even though he was an 80s kid um, it would actually make more sense if they had a bunch of 80s music but I'm not complaining because it's all my jam she's never heard Weezer's Blue Album (laughs) the greatest album ever made she's never heard Automatic for the People or Monster they're both albums that the REM tracks in this movie come from I loved that there was a Smashing Pumpkins Melancholy in the Infinite Silence poster I wish you'd gone and bought a copy on cassette (laughs) Helen, you've blown my mind with that. You're absolutely right. Yeah. This she's, film is a farce. She's a farce. never... No, but maybe they had the, the, the radio on the whole way up and we're just, you know, mm. enjoying waterfalls and a bit of yep. salt and pepper. What a man. <laughs> what a tune. Let's face it, TLC can cross the vast expanses of space. Yeah, yeah. It's out there. And it's, pe- it's period emphasis, right? Which is you know, yeah. just as much as dropping a blockbuster video in. It's mm-hmm. a reminder that actually this is the first MCU movie set yeah. in the 90s. Was anyone else getting really distracted trying to spot what the videos were? Yes, yeah, in the background, I, yeah. But Sucker Proxy was there. Did you see, behind, directly behind it was Jumping Jack Flash, yes, which is Whoopi, one of Whoopi my Goldberg. like favourite Whoopi Goldberg uh, but films it's also- on quite a short list. <laughs> 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 Can we list them? The colour purple. Uh huh. Yeah. Jumping Jack Flash. Ghost. Yeah. Keep going. That's it. We're done. Okay. Um, I, I, I love that she's a fan of the right stuff because, of course, she is. Of course, that yeah. would speak to her. Uh, it's weird. Somebody was saying about uh, Blockbuster that it's it's kind of bizarre that that's there because in the nineties it was the big bad guy. It was the big corporate mm-hmm. bad guy who was p- forcing all the little independent video shops out of out of uh, existence. And now it's the nostalgic hit that we all get, yeah. mm-hmm. um, which is, biz- I suppose, bizarre. But at the same time, it's a nostalgic hit that everybody gets. So it, it kind of really works, is. you know. And of course, they have movies that were made before 1989, which uh, certain major film <laughs> streaming services these days don't tend to. I don't have. know what you mean. don't know what you mean. But someone pointed out, and then obviously seeing the film again, and I know in fact there, there were two REM songs in it, but obviously the, the film is dominated mainly by female artists or female fronted bands. Mm-hmm. I also love the use of Holes, yep. celebrity skin Howell. at the end. At the end. Howell, Howell. sorry. Howell. Howell being the last song, very much uh, uh, pleased me. So there's Hole and Nirvana in this. Yes, which yes. I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Also, the closed captions called Come As You Are an upbeat music, uh, piece of music, which I thought was hilarious. But anyway. Um, What's that? When, the closed captions when, uh-huh. when Nirvana kicked in went, upbeat music plays. <laughs> upbeat inspirational song about life. I'm like, really? Does it? <laughs> oh, huh. No time for another question. At A. Matthew Johnson says, This is possibly the worst gripe ever. However, I'm a straight white male, so I have to hate something about this movie. He says, <laughs> Sam Jackson calls the, the Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement and Logistics Division SHIELD in this movie. However, isn't it implied that they come up with the acronym in Iron Man 1? No, I think that was Phil Coulson joking in Iron Man 1. It's the only thing that makes sense because there's no way that SHIELD was not named by Peggy Carter. It's ridiculous to say otherwise. Yeah, Shield is Shield the minute that is formed by Peggy Carter yeah. and Howard Stark and Because otherwise you wouldn't it. come up with that acronym. It doesn't no. make any sense. Yes. That joke in Iron Man One. But again, this is my point about sometimes these films this film is being made eleven years after the first Iron Man and twenty films down the line. And sometimes you have to kind of crowbar mm-hmm. a reference in to make it work with something that happened ten years ago. So there may be an element of in the first Iron Man there literally is an element of Coulson realising oh it is S.H.I.E.L.D. oh yeah but also I think it's mainly a joke about how <laughs> yeah. anal he is but if he's a rookie in 1995 yes in 2008 I think we can feel safe that yes. Coulson um, an intelligent man has probably figured out the acronym 
I liked seeing him as a rookie. I didn't think his de-aging was quite as flawless as Samuel L. Jackson's. Um, But Samuel L. Jackson's (laughs) was unbelievable. Oh, my God. I don't think there was a single moment that I didn't believe it. No. None at all. You're right. With Presumably Coulson, yeah. a bit of a, ma- a mixture of you know makeup and so on and and CG as they did with, you know, makeup with Kurt, Kurt Russell before. Yeah. But um, but stunning, stunning results anyway. I still want them to go back now and, and fix Tiny Steve in First <laughs> Avenger. It's not that bad. It's not that bad, but it could be a lot better. Yeah, you could be a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> It's very rare you win an argument with Helen, but you know that you have won one when she just starts going full school, full playground. Like you, yeah, you shut up. You've got a stupid face. You're the first offender. It's not you winning. That's me. Uh huh. Changing tactics. <laughs> All right, time for some more questions. This one comes from at uh, I think a Norwegian listener at Ronik R H. Can you talk about how refreshing it is that there's no bumbling about when Carol lands on Earth? Like she doesn't eat a bouquet of roses. She doesn't, <laughs> yeah. You know, she doesn't. All right, Aquaman. Kind of, what, what is this kind of thing? You know, there's none of that. Well, there's there is a bit of you know, where is the communication device? And do you know what I mean? Yeah, but she's still very confident. It's not like yes. she's going. It's not like Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home or yeah. anything like that. But she's still like pecking out things on the keypad and using yeah. the mouse quite gingerly. Like, what the heck does this do? It was like watching Ian Freer type. <laughs> I was going to say, wasn't that just all of us with the internet in the 90s? Yeah. What is this? I don't know why I'm following. I can still remember a friend telling me about this new thing called Google that I should try. <laughs> um, I mean, it worked. It'll never catch on. But uh, yeah, I love the fact that she's so uh, confident and assured the minute she lands. Could smile more. But oh uh, <laughs> No, I think Brie Larson's fantastic in this and we haven't yes. really talked about it that much. Mm. Her endless array of side-eye in the, in the movie is fantastic. Yeah, I love her. I mean, I have to say her breadth is great because I think um, she does... I mean, you know, she's one of the best dramatic actors working today. That's not a big shock that she really gets her mm. teeth into the emotional stuff. The scene with Maria in the garden yes. slash field, because it's a very big garden, where she is essentially the one who gets through to her and reminds mm. her who she is. She's obviously just discovered that she is Carol, that she's human, and, and Maria is kind of the one who helps her reconcile that and, and reminds her, you know, the, the line you've already riffed on, Chris, which is that you were the most powerful person. And she mm-hmm. says, person, not woman, you yep. were the most powerful person I've ever met long before you could shoot fire out of your fist. Absolutely. Um, and that, and she's, you know, the emotion in that scene is incredible, but she's also dead funny. Like the scene yes. with the security guard out in the parking <laughs> lot outside Blockbuster, the, the kind of straight way she played it yeah. and yeah. I mean, I just thought she was brilliant. The the chemistry and the humour between her and obviously Fury was just... Yeah. Imp- I thought she... And second time, actually, more than the first yeah. time, I thought she really, mm. really um, landed it and across the whole spectrum, yeah. really. We should talk about um, Maria as well, Lashana yes. Lynch, who I think is fantastic in this. And I think that, um, first of all, it's really good that the, the key emotional relationship of her life is with her friend, because, again, friend stories, whether female, female uh, or male, female friend friends, uh, don't get talked enough about mm. in film. I think we've had a lot of male buddy movies. We don't get so much of the other kind. Um, and uh, so that was really, really good. I think it was also, there's a, a nice moment. I don't know if everybody picked up on it. Um, Marie Rambo's call sign is, of course, Photon. Now, she in the comics has mm. been, she has been a Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. She was a Captain mm-hmm. Marvel very in the very early days, but she also obviously had a slightly longer time as Photon. So that might be a little clue to the future, potentially. I don't know. 
I was, um, but that was interesting. Yeah. Were you in any way, this is interesting, right? Because I went on set and I spoke to Lashana and Brie and they both spoke about female friendship and how powerful it was to have a, as you, exactly as you say, it's not a romantic relationship mm. at the heart of the film, it's a relationship between these two women. I think Lashana Lynch did an amazing job with what she had. I think I expected there to be more mm. of their relationship and especially establishing the closeness of the friendship from six years ago and you yeah. you kind of they started to dig into it but I felt like they almost hadn't earned the friendship that they were trying to present to you yeah. when yeah. they pick it up again I think the thing, that, sorry. The, the thing I loved is that the, the one snippet you get of that friendship from six years ago is is the only bit that she remembers mm. and I loved the scene where with her at Maria's house and they're sat at the table talking and I think um, both of them but especially Brie plays it perfectly where they have a rapport but it's from a relationship that Brie doesn't remember mm. and they they spark off each other and they you can tell that they've been friends for years but there's also a one-sidedness because mm-hmm. Maria it, it knows exactly who she is and Brie... But also doesn't. Maria's angry, I think. She's yeah. angry because yeah. she grieves for her yeah. best mm-hmm. friend who she you, you sense, you know, suspected may not have... It may not have all gone down as she thought, but she grieved for her friend who she couldn't even talk about she said it was, you know, a mission so secret that they never could even recognise mm-hmm. what happened. And, you know, raised her daughter. You got the sense that it was a key emotion, emotional relationship for her and that she'd helped her support her when yeah. the when her daughter was younger. And to have that taken away and then for her to casually stroll back into her life, yeah. you sense the anger you there do. as well. And I think also there's a little bit of the dependence that they had on each other that she's lost. Yes. She was clearly like a, maybe not a second mother, but certainly an aunt or something to that daughter. She clearly helped out. Mm. Uh, Maria specifically says, you, you know, you helped me when sort of no one else did. And she, of course, is dealing with, if they're both dealing with being women in a male dominated field Maria is also dealing with intersectional issues of yes. also being a black woman in a male dominated field and, and you get the sense yep. that she's had even tougher without that emotional support and, and, and yep. indeed practical support as well but in terms of what you're saying about the, the friendship feeling like it was missing a few scenes I agree I feel like this has been cut back mm. quite yep. a bit I feel like those flashbacks in particular have been just scissored yep. uh, you know because you don't cast McKenna Grace to have her on screen for like 30 seconds as a, as a young Carol Danvers she's such a good little mm. actress I feel mm. like you'd have her for a proper meaty thing mm. and that has been and I, I don't think you you know you still get the sense of what I think they were probably going for in those scenes but I think there's been a lot cut out I agree. I don't know for sure, having spoken to Bowden and Fleck about that. But yeah, I, I feel that, honestly, this is a movie I could have taken 50 to 20 more minutes off mm. just to fill in the emotional backstory a little bit more. But maybe they wanted to avoid those heavy, heavy flashbacks yeah. you get in some films, and maybe that's a good thing. You know? But also, this is, a, this is a common, not a common complaint, but a common point about the MCU. I think a lot of people, I know you love the first Avenger, but I think a lot of people would say that the Bucky-Steve relationship in that movie also isn't really given the weight mm. that it needs given how important it is and obviously how important it becomes. So maybe the future films, if there is going to be a Captain Marvel 2 and there will be uh, presumably the future films will begin to fill in that relationship with, with Maria and Carol a little yeah, bit more. I think so. How? I don't really know because yeah. I'm not sure how she comes back to Earth without someone noticing that this incredibly powerful cosmic entity has arrived on Earth. Uh, also it's interesting that Monica, her daughter Monica uh, it also 
is a Captain Marvel, grows yes. up to be a Captain Marvel. In fact, was my Captain Marvel when I started reading comics. She's a Captain Marvel who's in Secret Wars, for mm-hmm. example, which was a huge part of getting me into comics in the, in the first place. And uh, so I'll be very excited to see where they take that character. It feels to me that if you want to go down the sequel route with this character, and given the fact that Carol hasn't aged much, if indeed any, because of the combination of the, the energy and the Kree blood and whatnot she could team up with Monica in a future instalment. Yeah, and I do. I wonder if it's also partly because the other significant relationship is her and Fury, right? Which almost was like a buddy, like a buddy movie, yeah. right? And you had that which was lighter and funnier, but there was still intimacy and emotion there. And then kind of those relationships almost competed a little bit. And I don't know if that led to a bit of a kind of either cutting back the relationship with Maria, because you did have to balance those two because he was so important kind of narratively. And she was important emotionally. And I felt there was a bit of tension maybe between those two relationships, which one, because you kind of want one to anchor the film, or at least I wanted one to anchor the film. And the one I went into the film expecting to anchor the film Mm. was the one with Maria. Yeah, I remember Mm. you talking in the office about how it was going to be the emotional heart of the movie. And then I was surprised when Maria doesn't really appear for the first hour of the film. She appears in... In that kind of memory flashback. But I wonder if the structure that ultimately Bowden and Fleck settled on, which is really interesting structure, it's like a puzzle box structure where mm. you're trying to figure out this mystery along with the lead character as well. Uh, and one of my favourite scenes in the movie is the memory scene where the scrolls are delving into her memories and it's rewinding and playing and Annette Benning's entering left of frame then right of frame yep. and Carol's getting confused and Ben Mendelsohn's acting as he, the audience at that point is like what's going on here what's what's bloody well going on here this is a bit bloody confusing mate you flaming galah is, is what he says as a direct line from the movie does that narration work for you? yes absolutely yes. It, it's, I think it needed that it. was the bit that didn't work for me oh. and I, because exactly of what you're saying the signposting was so heavy-handed, like, go back, what was that? What did it? And I loved, like you, I stylistically, I loved that bit. I really, really loved it and was yeah. disappointed there kind of wasn't more. However they used the flashbacks, um, going forward, I was expecting it to repeat a lot of those kind of jumps back in time. But his, and that, again, like, I'm, I've got nothing against people with Australian accents, but it was <laughs> his, his voice coming over during those emotional scenes what? kept taking me out of the this, moment slightly. This is outrageous. I had this, I had this argument off mic with James Dyer the other day because he thinks it's appalling that the Skrulls or Tados essentially has an Australian accent everyone else seems to have American accents and whatever but who's to say that that's not what Skrulls sound like they're fictional for the love of God why should all aliens in movies sound like they've been to the RSC for a few seasons they shouldn't it's totally fine it's, it's totally the, fine it's the Doctor Who thing again all planets have a north damn yes. straight northern yeah. accent Damn straight. In, uh, in those flashbacks, I really loved the sort of grainy film texture that felt like a very new visual kind of note for the MCU um, when it flashed back to her childhood and it had that kind of, yep. yeah, that graininess. It yep. was just a really lovely little touch, I thought. Do we think that the whining fan babies who've been banging on about this movie for ages, how do you think they will take the fact that the Avengers are not only <laughs> named after Carol Danvers, but are inspired by Carol Danvers? I expect them to be thrilled and to turn around immediately and realise that they have been wasting their lives on a sad crusade against women and indeed anyone who doesn't fit their bill. Um, <laughs> given that the most recent tweets I've had from them, um, well, they they maybe haven't gotten there yet. All right, we'll call it a draw. I, I have to say that moment, I 
I there were there were words in my mouth that I was desperate to shout out in a quiet cinema that I just thought that moment was brilliant. I mean, mm. just such, such as give me give me one word. Bangly bang. Wow. <laughs> Oh, um, okay. But didn't. But wasn't it? I just thought it was, it was like lovely. a mic drop, a proper mic drop moment. Yeah. And yes, they're going to be furious. It also might be coincidence. Furious. It almost yeah. certainly is coincidence. But below that on the document, it also said phase one, which amused me <laughs> a little bit. I didn't notice that. Yeah. I mean, not section one, not paragraph one, phase one. So. Uh, someone has pointed out, I will get to the question later on, but why do we think that Fury hasn't used the get-out-of-jail-free card that is Carol Danvers up until now. Mm. And again, this might be ha- something to do with the fact that this movie was made many years after <laughs> Avengers and Avengers Age of Ultron. But why do we think he hasn't called her whenever Ultron starts dropping cities from the sky mm. and, uh, and the Chitari turn up? Because by that point, the Avengers are a, are a thing. He has achieved his goal of, of setting up the Avengers initiative. And by Age of Ultron, there's like, what, 14, 18 superpowered people around. And I think it's not until it's the instinct of the moment in Infinity War when half of the world is turning to ash mm. and he realises he's got 15 seconds to do something that he's like, yep, good point. Yeah. It, it may also be it was, you know, elsewhere during the events of Age of Ultron and, and Avengers. They, you know, unfold quite quickly. It may also be that he and she are in contact in some way and he knows that she's too far at that point to be any use. There, there, uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? There may be... We don't know what's happening in between. Mm. We don't know if there's completely no contact for those 15 years or if she could... Sorry, 25 years, 30, I guess. yeah. Um, or if she'll be back in some way. So, hey-ho. I just think it's a gravity... Nothing has been that that threatening, right? Mm. There has been no moment that grave. And as you say, it's, the, it's his final act. And she'd said, obviously, you know, while they were washing the dishes, do not use this, apart from an emergency. Mm. Yeah. And there is no emergency more emergent yeah. than... Emergency <laughs> <laughs> more emergent. Is that one of the words you wanted to shout at the screen? <laughs> emergent! Emergent! There is no emergency more emergent than you're, you're dissolving into ash. That brings us on, actually, to the first post-credit sting as ever with these Marvel things first post credit sting is something that fits into the wider narrative and has an impact on where the next film or films is going to go the second post credit sting is a laugh so it's it's Goose the flurkin and coughing up the Tesseract again massive hairball uh, from his pocket dimensions that reside within him but the first one seems to be a bridging scene yes. between mm. Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame in which Cap Bruce, Natasha, and Rhodey are visited by someone that they don't—they've never seen before. Oh, you forgot someone. Cap's beard is also there. Cap's beard <laughs> is back for Sharon Carter's Um How? What? What? How? What? Hmm? So presumably, this is uh, within the days and weeks following Infinity War. We don't yet know the the elapse of time between Infinity War and Endgame. We have reason to believe it's a little bit longer than that. But this seems to be fairly short, not least because he hasn't committed the atrocity of shaving. Um, <laughs> or having a haircut. It is trimmed though, isn't it? It's a, it's a shorter beard. I, I didn't think so specifically. Particularly. His I... hair is still long as well on yeah. top. So my point being, they'd had time to obviously locate Fury's car, um, locate the pager, yes. uh, hook it up and make sure it was working and power it up so the battery didn't die. Yes. So it's been at least a few days, I think we yes. can say. Uh, this struck me as something like um, 
the scene from Infinity War that we, uh, from Civil War, sorry, that ended up being a post-credit sequence where it was Bucky's arm in the yep. in the, in the vice. Um, vice. Mm. Because surely there's got to be a moment in Endgame that is the arrival of Carol Danvers, which is which is that scene. You can't. Oh yeah, it doesn't mean yeah. we won't see that in Endgame. Yeah, yeah I sure. feel like that that was a see rather than a sort of bridging scene of this is in between the films that I, it struck me as a, a piece of Endgame. That's interesting. I mean, I, I yeah, I'm not sure. I've, I've I have spoken a little bit about that scene with Kevin Feige, uh, which is going to be in the Avengers Endgame feature, which will be out in a week and a half's time. The new issue of Empire on sale in about a week and a half's time. By the time you listen to this. So I'm not going to give away what he said, but obviously that was directed by Anthony and Joe Russo. That does indicate that it might be a part of Endgame. It's not completely out of the question for them to do that. There is the the uh, post-credits thing on the first Avenger is a scene from Avengers. And you're right, the scene from uh, the scene at the end of Ant-Man is a scene in Civil War as well. But it does it does it does pose interesting questions about where it fits into the the film's larger narrative. I wonder if this might be the opening of Endgame. You know, way every Avengers movie so far has kind of started with a, a pre-credits bit and then cuts to the Avengers title, and I think that might be the case. And I love the fact that it's it obviously suggests that they meet Carol very quickly yes and that you know there's not a big huge build up and it's not, it's not like third act battle where she suddenly kind of comes in to save the day that she's going to be integral from the get go and I kind of love how it was done without too much aplomb like literally they mm-hmm. turn around and she's like where's Fury and there's, <laughs> it's, it's I kind of almost loved the ca- quite casual nature of that it seemed like there were a few tweaks to the costume as well. She has sort of gold shoulder pads. Mm. I think the shape of the star is slightly different, which makes sense because obviously she wants to probably shed herself of the of the mm. Kree uh, emblems. And uh, obviously her hair is a bit different. I like that they, what they do with all of the heroes kind of between films, that they just make these subtle tweaks uh, to the costumes. It's hard, obviously we've seen it twice, but it's such a... Kind of, she's on screen for like one it's second. Almost but. literally blinking, you'll miss it. Yeah. But yeah, there there are a few things about her that are that are different. Uh, also, I imagine she's massively, massively powerful now, but mm. uh, but still not on the level of a Thanos with six Infinity Stones. So I don't think she's the get out of jail free card for yeah. Avengers Endgame. She's a, she's a helpful card in the mm. deck, Precisely. but she's not a she's not a fix it. Precisely. She's got time for a few last questions because. James Dyer and Boyd Hilton from the Pilot TV podcast are standing outside and giving me the evils because we're eating into their time. But uh, but hey, we've got a few, more, a few minutes left. It's all, it's all fine. Uh, so here's a question from at Straffo who asks, what do we make of the fact that Carol is never called or referred to as Captain Marvel in the entire film, nor is the name even hinted at or set up? Can uh, I say, I love it. Yeah, I lo- it's yeah. a stupid name. And I don't think that anyone would call her that. The whole film is about her her realising her her true self and her true self is Carol Danvers. Like mm. that for me was to suddenly call her Captain Marvel would have done, undone half the work the film did. When she, It takes till the final 10 minutes of the film for her to say, my name is Carol Danvers. Like that was a really significant moment. It would have been stupid then to call her Captain Marvel, <laughs> in my opinion. Not that your question is stupid. Thank you for sending it in. It strikes me possibly as a... <laughs> sort of nickname or something that, that somebody else will, will yeah. eventually call her, that mm. there'll be a scene where it's Tony Stark or something where she's like, oh, my mentor not. Marvel. It's like, oh, what, the Marvel, Marvel, oh yeah. Marvel, whatever. Oh, that really... whole Marvel Marvel theme. Uh, yeah. We haven't talked about Annette Benning. She's great, obviously. Oh, I feel yeah, like, again, so there should have been more of her. Yeah. Mm. But she's so good. In, in the comics, of course, uh, Marvel uh, masqueraded as William Lawson. So Wendy Lawson is a, a direct 
translation of that, which is cool also. Marvel, that original Captain Marvel was one of the first Marvel characters to properly die as well. Mm. So he's a very Marvel. The idea of Marvel is very, very important in Marvel history. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, I think this was a bit of a switcheroo. I don't think mm. anyone expected Annette Benning to be. Marvel in that way. What do we make no. of, of that twisty Rooney? Well, and obviously the the film. God, over a year, everyone thought Jude Law was Marvel. Yeah, Yon Rog. Yon Rog. Um, Bastard. Uh, I turned up on set with a list of questions about him being Marvel, so that was a panic ten minutes. Um, <laughs> uh, but and, and you know, I love the fact that she was a woman, and that actually her real mentor and the person whose path she is following in, who has started you know, who basically wanted to stop wars and bring peace yeah. was a woman. I thought that was, again, a really powerful statement yeah. for them to make. Absolutely. I think that maybe also slightly suffers though from the Maria Rambeau problem in that she is the person that Carol sees when she visits the Supreme Intelligence. Mm-hmm. And we're told that she's the person she admires most. And they have maybe three scenes together, yeah. most of which are in some sort of adversity. And so we don't see a sign of them really bonding. I agree. In, yeah, it's in it's that only way. that one on the sort of on the apron in front yeah. of the hangar. That's all we get. And I, I think you're right. I think we, we could have done with a little bit more there. Yeah. I love that you get Annette Benning as the um, when she's the sassy supreme, supreme intelligence. I think she really milks you those moments. You just call her sassy when she's like on international Day. No, no, not the S word. Oh no, she's feisty oh, bad. I think you mean yeah, yeah, yeah. Bad. Okay. <laughs> well, a couple of last questions. One, and this is going to open a can of worms. Helen, you ready? Yep. Uh, at Al with envelope, and a few people have asked this. The Tesseract is Cree. No, it is not. It nope. predates the Cree. Yeah. But do we have any more information about where it was after Captain Marvel until Fury has it in Avengers? And a few people have asked about the timeline of the Tesseract. So, Helen. Uh, okay, so in the first Avenger, it fell out of the plane before the plane crashed. Yep. So quite a long way away, actually, given the speed of a plane like that. Big old traveling. plane. Big old plane. Um, and it was found... By mm-hmm. Howard, Stark Howard Stark when he was, you know, mapping the grid points and trying to find the wreckage of Cap's plane. And it was brought up by Howard Stark. Howard Stark. So that's, I think I'm right in saying, the last we saw of it until the first Avengers, or sorry, until Avengers, which obviously mm-hmm. takes place quite a long time after this film. Well, so, the f- next time we saw it is at the end of Thor. And yes, post credit sting. Yes, but when there is Nick Fury says, "Look at this," and Loki goes, "Ooh, I want a bit of that." Mm-hmm. Yes, but that's you know part yeah. of the same sort of, of scene, of course. Yeah. So, um, so that is, you know, in Shield's possession at that point. So obviously, this appears to be how Shield got hold of it. How it got from Howard Stark to mm-hmm. Marvel is the bit we don't know. Precisely. It wouldn't. It wouldn't be surprising if Howard Stark was somehow involved in that NASA slash U.S. Air Force Pegasus project in mm-hmm. some fashion. He is obviously uh, well, well connected with the U.S. military, so perhaps it's literally through that. If yeah. if Mar if Marvel if um, if Wendy Lawson came to him and said, "I've got this plan. It's going to you know end wars, keep the peace. I need that thing you've got." Mm-hmm. It would make sense to me that Howard Stark would go, "Cool, have a yeah. go." Absolutely. Uh, we. Uh, I don't think that Marvel's presence on Earth is a coincidence. I think mm. she knows about the Tesseract, and in a way that they perhaps don't know how important it is, or how powerful it is, or what it does. And so you're absolutely right. She shows up and goes, "Hey, that blue glowy thing that looks like it could be a source of great energy. Let's give that a go." And now you've said that, Helen. Mm. I'm slightly disappointed there was no Howard Stark cameo in this movie. Yeah, that would have been cool too. We need another. We need more one shots. We need like a whole ton of one shots. Except. They're dead by that point. 
The Starks mm. are dead by that point. They died in 1991. Okay, but she, we don't know how long she's been on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, you're right. 1989, they're still alive. Because Howard Stark, John Slattery vintage, is in the opening credits sting of Ant-Man. And that is the time... Same year, 1989. That's the time that the uh, the the, uh, the the accident happens and Carol gets her powers and all sorts of stuff. So yeah, that makes sense. So you're right. So and then after that, after that, after this movie, it ends up in Shield's possession. Then Loki gets it, and now it is obviously on Thanos's big old glove. Helen, you mentioned this earlier on. At Ian O Social says, "Is Fury losing his eye to a cat scratch a bit of a letdown after twelve years of wondering what the hell happened?" No, it's super good, and it's not a cat; it's a flurkin. It's a flurkin, you flurker, you mother flurker. Anyone else have any thoughts? What do we like? Goose? Happy with Goose? Love Goose. Love Goose. And the eye scratch is very funny. Where is Goose in the uh, in the World of Infinity War? Hopefully, you know, cats don't have a great lifespan, do they? So we don't know about flurkins. No. Yeah. yeah, imagine that flurkin. I'm afraid Goose was very ill no. and had to go to a very, very special place. If that flurkin can hold the Tesseract in its immense stomach, gullet, why, doesn't stomach? It eat, why doesn't it eat Thanos? Don't ruin the end of Endgame. <laughs> Chris. Can you imagine? <laughs> At Dialogue asks, now Yon Rog knows the Tesseract is on Earth and was sent back to the Kree homeworld, why do you think he hasn't attempted to return to Earth to retrieve it with a much bigger army? because Captain Marvel would probably smash his face into the ground. Yeah, yeah, because they still won't be powerful <laughs> enough. Uh, and then one last thing from me, at Chris Hewitt asks, who saw the reveal of Fears, Fears being Dan Vers, who saw that coming? I Not didn't, me. I didn't really pay any attention, weirdly. I didn't really focus on her name. I was just kind of enjoying what was going on. So I didn't see it coming is my way of... Is my way of admitting it now. <laughs> All right, fantastic. Anyone else, Terry? I just thought they'd because I was like, it would be verse, wouldn't it? Yeah, precisely. But they, don't, they don't know how it's pronounced necessarily. But it, look at it. It would if it was Vers, it would be two e's. But then his universal translator may be futzing. Yeah. <laughs> Carol Dan Vers. Just when you thought you were out, we pull you back in. Yes, it's a few days now after we recorded our first part of the Captain Marvel spoiler special. A couple of things happened in that time. One, I got the time wrong uh, for putting up the spoiler special in the first place. So we took it down for a couple of days and now we're going to put it back up again. So right. that's what you listen to right now. But we thought as a little bit of a, an olive branch, is that what you call it? I believe so. A little bit of a Civil War reference there for people. <laughs> um, anyway. A little bit of an olive branch to you guys for taking it away from you for a couple of days. Helen and I thought we would come back at the pod booth immediately after recording our Avengers Endgame trailer breakdown podcast special. Yes, also listen to that. And listen to that like. as well, yeah. And we would kick, it's just me and Helen here. Terry is away and Ben, they're also, Ben, I think Ben got snapped. Oh no. Very sad. Dust oh, everywhere. Anyway, I mean. we thought we'd come in here and kick around some of the things that we didn't really get around to talking about last time and answer some of your questions as well that you've been able to send in after the fact because now sure. the movie's been out for a week. Gangbusters at the box office. Absolutely. It appears that everyone has been to see it. Um, 455 million opening weekend. Mm -hmm. um, so it's doing rather well indeed. Nailed on for a billion unless it really goes off a cliff, but I yeah. don't think it is. I think this thing is really fascinating watching Captain Marvel 
now that the movie's out, we can see the reaction to it because, and I, I, I've seen it again since mm-hmm. now three times. Took my wife, uh, drink a game, to to see it, and she loved it. Some of the flaws still exist for me. I think some of the pacing is a little bit lax. Mm-hmm. Some of the dialogue is a little bit on the nose. But I also love the character work. I think Brie Larson is fantastic. I cannot yeah. wait to see her interact with the Avengers, and it just has. It's really, really cool. Someone's written in, I hope you will get your question, but someone said that uh, one of the reasons they liked it is that it's, for them, an inversion of the Marvel origin story template. And that obviously Carol starts with her powers. She's fully powered up. She doesn't know it at that point, of course. Mm -hmm. But she has her powers and then she discovers who she is. Whereas most... Marvel movies I mean you know we've talked in the podcast before about how they've perfected that template now that you can overlay Ant-Man and Doctor Strange upon Iron Man and for my money improve upon that template <laughs> um, each time that each time it just gets a little bit more refined mm. a little bit more perfected and this is a really cool inversion of that. Yeah, I like that it's not a strict origin story in the usual sense. We almost get the origin at the end and everything else before that. Um, so we, yeah, you're right. We know who she is as a person before we see why she is as a power, if you like. Um, and and I don't think that, you know, as, as Maria Rambo says, I don't think she changes that much as a person she's she's still you know she said she was the most powerful woman she knew before she had the powers most powerful person she knew before she had powers so uh, it sort of feels like a good fit in that way I still can't believe Rambo's call sign wasn't first blood <laughs> we'll get that in part two yeah I Rambo, guess so. Rambo part two <laughs> but of course it was Photon which is not to the comics instead which makes more sense yes um, one of the things I wanted to talk about that somehow inexplicably we didn't talk about mm. this last time well I know it's it's actually pretty explicably because we ran out of time is the Stan Lee yes not just a cameo but yep. that lovely touching tribute to Stan at the beginning where the Marvel Studios logo has been changed so it's <laughs> all Stan Lee all, all of his cameos across the, and they're, they're actually sort of matched I believe to the film's that would usually appear at that moment. Oh, so really? it's, it's the Captain America cameo at the same moment you would see the Captain America, you know, p- clip uh, from the film. Oh, that's lovely. Um, I hadn't so realised that. It's beautifully, beautifully done. I think it's absolutely wonderful. I, th- I kind of feel like the reason we didn't talk about it last time was almost like, well, obviously that's brilliant. There's nothing else to say about that. That is so good. Um, but it was it's lovely and I hope they're going to keep that for the next couple of films. I think they will. We've been told this week that there are a couple more uh, Stanley cameos in the bank. He, of course, would go to the studios, whether in Atlanta or wherever, and do three or four at a time. So there are a couple more that are, are there. They're recorded. They're waiting to come out. Presumably Endgame and Far From Home at the very mm-hmm. least. And so this won't be the last we'll see him. So we might, I guess, keep this almost for... We'll see. Yeah. And you know what? I hope they don't use it in an endgame. Yeah. Quite honestly, I think it's perfect as a one-off. Yeah. I think it's absolutely lovely. It's, it's a really, really touchy moment. When my, I saw my wife, she reached over and squeezed my hand yeah. at the end. And she was like... I looked at her, she was almost in tears at yeah. it. And the, the very, very simple thank you stand at the end. And it's not just cameos as well. If you look at it, there's actual yes, footage of him with Robert yeah. Downey Jr. Yeah. and... It's just it's just really really lovely, and let's let's talk about his cameo as well, which is mm. which is equally gorgeous, <laughs> and for my money, one of the best cameos and in uh, one of the best Stanley cameos, and obviously it takes place on the on the train during the train fight. Mm-hmm. Carol is going on the train. She's looking at the different passengers, one of whom, of course, is Kelly Sue DeConnick as well, yes, who yes. is the, the writer behind 
one of the, I guess, the, the revival almost of, of Carol Danvers. Yeah, basically, it was the, the sort of the arc that provided closest inspiration for this version of the character. Um, sort of kind of reinvented slightly Carol Danvers as, well, certainly gave her the Captain Marvel title. It was that 2012, I believe run by her so it's 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 a really nice little nod as well yeah lovely so um but he's on the train yeah he's reading the <laughs> script from mall rats yes and he's saying enough said true believers yes which is of course one of his great catchphrases he's already <laughs> said excelsior in avengers age of ultron so now he gets to say enough said true believers in a yeah. marvel movie as well and this is a lovely lovely moment and kevin smith actually was talking about this on Instagram this week about how it moved him because suddenly he was part of the Marvel Cinematic <laughs> Universe as well as ultra mega I mean mega he must dork. be yeah he must be yeah he must be part of the Marvel of the MCU definitely um there somebody who i have to say has more time than joy in their hearts um has suggested that the timing's wrong because Mallrats came out into in 1995 so he would have filmed his cameo a good bit earlier and to which i say boo yeah. Anyway, maybe, but then maybe. it's an indie film. They, they yeah. turn these things around in in seconds. 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 Barely, barely. You know, limit them. It's a lovely, lovely moment. Uh, we do have some additional questions, and of course, sure. if there's anything else that you know springs to mind, we'll we'll talk about that really, really quickly. But here's one from Matthew Buck uh, on Twitter at Matthew R Buck, uh, who says, "When Captain Marvel blew up the engine, all the Tesseract energy conveniently headed towards and filled Captain Marvel instead of dispersing evenly or even filling Yon Rog too. Yon Rog, that mm. bastard." What a dick. Do you think this was just a convenient plot device or did the Tesseract show a level of intelligence like other Infinity Stones have in the past? The Aether and Thor mm. 2, the Mind Stone, the Soul Stone, of course, Infinity War and the Tesseract in Cap 1. Hmm, it could be both. I mean, it could be that she shot a hole in it and that it, you know, shot directly out the hole rather than sort of shattering in a million directions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Can I just say you, you just used the phrase shot directly out the hole and I, I said nothing. I know you did and, and what wonderful... Growth as a person that demonstrates until you pointed it out. That Can you I just said say nothing. you just said the phrase "what wonderful growth as a person"? And again, <laughs> I let that go. Okay. <laughs> now, I, now I don't know what to say. Uh, you should say that. So that makes sense. Does it? Doesn't it? Does it? I think it makes sense. Okay. Because but, I thought that too, actually. Yeah. So the, you know that she. Yeah. So it would maybe make sense. It was a sort of ricochet, if you like, of power. Also, it is possible that the the stone has some sort of intelligence. Huh. Interesting, isn't it? But they're infinite, you know. So no matter how much you use up the power, there's still some power in there. Damn straight. And of course, that's not the tesseract itself. That's no. Yeah. It's tesseract infused. Tesseract infused. Yeah. Ooh. Hint of tesseract. Hmm. Lovely. If you were ordering it on a menu. Yeah. It would be hint of tesseract. At Margot Sarsinska asks, uh, I'd love to hear you guys talk about the cut footage. There's some flashbacks in the trailer that didn't end up in the film uh, as well. Mm. They all feel really rushed. I wonder if there's more shot that might end up in a Blu-ray edition. We talked about this a little bit in the last one. We don't know specifically what was cut necessarily. It is interesting. I mean, I definitely did notice there were some shots in the teaser in the trailer of Carol with Star Force. Mm-hmm. and Yon rog and that lot um, that didn't end up in the movie. That's kind of par for the course of these films. Yeah. I mean, they're they're moulded and shaped and it's not a Marvel movie per se. It is, but it isn't. It's not an MCU movie. But I remember speaking to uh, Lord and Miller and the directors of in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and they basically had that, tr- that teaser that came out a year before the movie 
they still didn't know what the movie was going to look like. Mm. And that teaser, as much as the as much as that the reaction to that, as much shaped the look of the film as anything else. But I'm pretty sure there's more Ronan in one of the, the teasers as well. It indicates there's more Ronan the Accuser, also. And interesting enough, I saw I was digging around the other the other day, and I saw some pap shots of Brie Larson putting this smackdown on that guy who says, hey, give us a smile. You know, the biker, the guy whose oh, yeah. bike she steals. Yep. So there's pap shots of her actually like grabbing the guy and resting him to the ground. And so clearly there must have been a physical confrontation there that they cut. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I'm glad they cut it because I think what she does is much cleverer and funnier and a bigger fuck you yeah. than her literally just putting the hurt in some guy. Yeah, I agree. I think I think it's um, it's a bit unnecessary and it maybe would make her look too too short tempered, too easily triggered. Yeah. Um, which I think would you know, people are already accusing her of being a woman. My God, can you imagine? But it's also so, the thing is isn't it Superman too, a lot of people have the problem with Superman at the end of that movie when he's got his powers back, he goes to the diner mm-hmm. and he basically puts the bully who bullied him yeah. and humiliated him early in the movie. He hum- he humiliates the bully back. And a lot of people have a problem with that because they feel that Superman is punching downwards, like majorly punching downwards. And I guess you could say the same thing about Carol. Yeah, exactly. It would look it would look bullying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. and overly aggressive. I agree. Talk of Superman actually brings me on to a point that some people have made, and we forgot to talk about last time, which is Carol's power levels. Mm-hmm. And does this represent a problem for the MCU going forward? This has been a, compl- a continual complaint um, from. Uh, large numbers of people it has a very big overlap with the people who are determined to hate the movie whatever happens but that's not to say that everyone who worries about this is one of those people they've just adopted it as their own I mean I think her power levels to me seem comparable with Thor's we saw in Endgame Thor basically lightening his way through a bunch of ships that may be slightly smaller than the one she takes out at the end of this movie, but there were like five of them and he did it in about two minutes. <laughs> so it's not like she's, you know, going to be light years away from what Thor can do. So I don't see that it's a problem. And I think what one of the things that's been really, truly impressive about the Avengers films in general is that they have to find something for, you know, a super strong dude called Steve Rogers, but who's still basically a dude, to do in the same battle as the Hulk and Thor and Iron Man and and also the completely non-superpowered apart from being extremely skilled Hawkeye and Black Widow so they find that way to kind of cover the gamut so even if she is superpowered they're going to find something that will then also test her I mean I think Superman has this problem that he doesn't have a lot of rogues who can really stand up to him that, you know certainly in the, in the movies that's been a continual problem unless he's called Zod it probably hasn't quite worked but I don't think that's generally true in the MCU and I don't think it's been much of an issue and I don't see Carol suddenly changing that. That's interesting. I, 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 I think they're far too smart to let it become a problem, but I think it could become a problem. Uh, but I don't think it's, I don't think it ultimately well, it will. Yeah, I mean, look, there's always been moments where we've gone, well, has he forgotten that he can do this? Mm. Well, why doesn't he do this? Why doesn't he call this person? I mean, there's always been those kind of little bits where you have to suspend Mm. disbelief a little bit. I mean, the thing with Superman is that you always have to get out of kryptonite. And you don't have that with Carol unless, unless, like Brie Larson, she's allergic to cats. And maybe, (laughs) and maybe something happens with Goose in sequels. But we don't think we, I don't think we really talked in depth last time about what we think a sequel could be. Because Ronan says at the end of the movie, Mm. uh, we're going to come back 
mm-hmm. for the weapon. Yeah. And he says, her. We're going to come back for her. It, you know, he's... We talked a little bit about how we think that maybe turns him on to the idea of what Infinity Stones can do. It clearly sets up that he wants to—he wants something to do with Carol Danvers. Mm-hmm. So maybe he pursues her. Maybe that's an avenue that can go down. Yeah, absolutely. But again, where's that end? Because we know he survives because he ends up in Guardians of the Galaxy. So where's the drama there? Yeah, I think that's a real risk. Um, I mean, not that all the MCU villains have all died, um, but it does, as you say, remove that. And this is one of my yeah. big problems, as you know, with, with prequels. You always have that slightly less tension as a result. Yeah, if you go into the movie knowing that Ronan is going to mm. survive no matter what or yeah. not get put in prison no matter what, yeah, yeah. it's fine. But there is still the um, supreme intelligence. Um, there is still the Kree Empire. Mm. Um, and it doesn't have to just be Ronan who accuses or who's one of the accusers because I mean the the very distinct impression that you have in this entire film is that all the accusers are fucking nut jobs <laughs> like they are you know they're they're extremists they're fanatics and they are utterly utterly willing to kill innocents on their in pursuit of whatever goals they've set yes so uh, so it doesn't just have to be Ronan um, yes. to have a bit of trouble Okay, interesting. But there's also this, there's 24 years to play with mm. between her disappearing from Earth and answering Fury's call in Avengers Endgame. Yeah. 24 years between, that we know of. It yeah. might, be, might be slightly longer. Do you think she comes back to Earth in that time? Well, that's a question. I think it's possible. There's also been questions about why didn't Fury call her earlier and why, with half the universe disappearing, does she answer the call? Frankly, wouldn't the logical thing be to go, not now, we've got real problems here? wherever she is. Um, Now, I think there's a couple of possible answers to this. First of all, she might well have been back in the meantime. Um, Second of all, as somebody on Twitter suggested, and I apologise, I've forgotten who, um, it may be that he didn't need to call her because he had the Avengers, because he felt like it was covered with the Avengers initiative. Um, So that might be why he he didn't do it before. He may also not know quite how powerful she is now. He may think, because he wasn't up in space. He doesn't know quite what she did. Do you know what I mean? Like she, he knows she's powerful, but he doesn't necessarily know the full extent of it. Yeah. Um, so I, there's that. I, yeah. The other po- possibility is, and this is only speculation on my part, but what if she got the page before she got before people started dusting? Like the dusting, we know it took a little minute. What if it spread outwards from Earth? What if the page arrived before the dust did, and therefore she has reason to believe it started closer to Fury I mean it's a wild speculation it's a, yeah why do I think she goes back to Fury because she gets a message from a guy that said he would call her only in the most extreme of emergencies I think that's that's literally got to be the only reason right obviously yeah. she knows that it's happening all over the well presumably people around her have dusted perhaps presumably you know it's all it's all kicked off yeah but you know you do want to start applying science to the <laughs> Marvel movies for the love of God or magic you well, know? I mean, is there even a difference, Chris? There's no difference, Helen. No. But how long would it take, theoretically, for a message to travel into space? You know, it- She souped up the pager in the same way that she was able to communicate with yon Rog and yes. those guys. So she had a, like a super hyperspace yes. transit link thingy. But she does say mm-hmm. the range should be a couple of galaxies. She does. She does. So yeah, she's only going to be a couple of galaxies away. She's not going to be on the other side of the universe. So she's going to be within commuting distance. Of Earth, wow. which is why she, she <laughs> for Carol Danvers, you know, she's going to be wow. in zone three billion, right? 
And so she just swipes her oyster and away she goes. That is, I mean, wow. It's a, it's a commute. It's, I mean, it really, I mean, I just feel like you should watch more Star Trek Voyager. You could get caught up in Fleabag in a commute like that. It's only two episodes this season so far. Anyway, question from Brewery Chris, Christelle B. Some are worried that Carol will make things too easy in Endgame. Do you think it will be a more complex personal solution with Captain Marvel just doing something that only she can, like perhaps wield the Infinity Gauntlet? I think everybody's going to do something that only they can, um, but I don't think that necessarily means that. Um, and I don't think anything in Endgame is going to be easy. John Worrell, Itchy Nads, asks, so Carol Danvers disappears in 1989, the same year Empire was first published. Coincidence or something more sinister? Something more sinister. Yes. She uh, she left a vacuum in the universe <laughs> and a great evil rushed to fill it. <laughs> yeah, there have been questions, though, haven't there, about the music? Um, yes. Given that she left in 89, you know, how is Come As You Are playing in her head when she talks to the Supreme Intelligence again? See, that's what I was wondering. I was wondering if the Supreme Intelligence was playing... Nirvana in that moment and not Carol. Well, it's meant to have come from her subconscious, I, we think, but we know the Supreme Intelligence is a big fat liar, so... Yeah, you know. and she even dances her. She goes, hey, music, good touch, but mm. is she complimenting her, herself, itself? It seems like she would. It would. It would, it? yeah. Mm. Um, just really last couple of last things. Simon909 asks, is Captain America really the first Avenger? We learn that Fury creates the Avenger program through seeing Captain Marvel's call sign in 1985. Uh, way before he knew of Captain America being alive. So should Captain Marvel be the first Avenger? Well, yes and no, because, you know, he's the first Avenger chronologically, as far as we know, unless there's timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly stuff. Also, I think Avenger's a state of mind. (laughs) And I don't think that Steve in the first Avenger, he is not a part of the Avengers. And God knows, even in terms of putting the Avengers together, then Tony Stark is the first Avenger. No, because he gets turned down. But he's the one he's first approached. Well. So, who, but who first signs up? Like, who is first? Who is literally first as part of the Avengers in the movie, well, she The Avengers? She didn't show up to the first meeting. Natasha Romanoff. Natasha Romanoff is the first is Avenger. Is the first mm-hmm. Avenger. Okay. Girl power. <laughs> oh, don't say that, Chris. You'll get <laughs> trolled on Twitter for a week and a half. Hashtag girl power. It's all good. One last thing about the music. Someone wrote in to say that during the memory montage where we see Carol beginning to remember things like going to karaoke with mm-hmm. Maria Rambo. Yeah. And by the way, if that's an example of what Brie Larson is like doing karaoke, then we got to go to karaoke where Brie yeah, Larson... Yeah, we do. Uh, that she sings a song by Heart. Okay. And so her music is more 70s and 80s stuff. But oh. also she wears a Heart t-shirt at the end of the movie. Oh, so that's nice. So not just Nine Inch Nails. May- <laughs> no, she doesn't wear Nine Inch Nails. You would have, you would have seen no, them. Not, not literally on her hand. Oh, okay, I but s- the t-shirt, Chris. Keep up. Okay, sorry about that. I see that. Uh, some people have asked what happens in the movie to Bronjar and Korath. Because we don't really see what happens to them. They kind of just disappear. Bronchar and Korath. Yes, they do. Well, we know Korath survives. Yes. Um, uh, Bronchar, you know, he's just going about his business being Cree, I guess. Who picks him up? They're on the ship. They're on Marvel's la- laboratory. On. So They are, you're right. Mm. Well, I mean, so are a bunch of scrolls, so they're probably tied up and in the brig now. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, they're doing tender life. <laughs> tender life. For... Well, we know they're going to escape, or at least we know Korath will. Yeah. All right. I think that's pretty much it. I think we've covered pretty much everything. Oh, no, we haven't. Oh, God. One last thing. Carol's costume. 
which is really, really cool. And yeah. it's obviously very closely based on our good friend, Jamie McKelvey's design. Yep. And uh, he's been very, very happy about that uh, on the so. socials. And well done. Shout out to Jamie, if indeed you are listening to this. And it's a really, really cool scene. I really like this scene, actually, between... Carol and Monica mm-hmm. and it shows this lovely side of Carol's personality which comes out whenever she's with Lieutenant Trouble yeah it does which is super cute yeah. uh, I, I actually really liked the sort of black day glow version of the suit what the yeah with the, the sort of fluorescent lines oh, I loved that it looked so cool <laughs> it was amazing and she's all like no I don't think so I'm like dude it's the best one it's so apart good apart from Jamie McKelvey's apart design apart from Jamie's which of course we prefer iconic iconic but uh, also, yeah. have you considered doing it in fluorescent? <laughs> I just think it could work. Um, yeah, no, it was that was really fun and just yeah. a nice little touch. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's cute that she was sort of taking her colours. And, and it's funny, actually, if you watch the scenes of Brie Larson at her premiere talking to little girls, it's basically exactly the same kind of conversation, <laughs> um, which is also super cute. So yay to everyone involved for that. It's It's just nice to get those little moments of shade and nuance with Carol because we talked in the, in the last time mm. about how she's very confident and she's very driven when she gets to Earth and actually it's kind of not true there are moments she gets really knocked back when she discovers for example they go to Pegasus and they discover that you know she discovers that uh, Marvell Lawson is dead yeah, and, and that she, she was there yeah she was there she's crushed in mm. that moment and she really you know there, there are moments that she absolutely has moments of introspection rather than just being uh, that that sort of bold confident front that, yeah. that she puts and on and she is tortured by nightmares and she can't sleep and you know exactly. so there is all of that kind of nuance there but I think I think it's easy to miss some of that first time around because you're focusing on the, the confidence the um, the sort of attitude the jokes everything else but it is there underneath and I think you, you notice it more as you go along some people have said that the tunnel the Project Pegasus location mm-hmm. is in fact the, the same location that blows up the beginning of Avengers Assemble. I mean, I think there's there's been some serious speculation about that. I mean, the only problem is the entrance to this one is very much in mountains among hills, and yeah. that one was very Maria much hills? on a plain. No, not Maria Hills. Oh, okay. And this one, that one was very much on a plain. That's not to say there isn't another exit at the far end of the tunnel. So I guess it's possible. It does. I mean, I've done a little bit of research in this. I mean, the tunnels look very very similar. As in, I've just quickly googled it and. <laughs> It does appear to be the same place. I mean, it literally says there's a, there's a wiki here that says it was destroyed uh, at the hands of Loki. All right. And it's Project Pegasus, which is mentioned in Iron Man 2 as well. Yes, indeed. So, so there you go. It's cool. all connected. <gasps> Hashtag it's all connected. Love it when an MCU comes together. Oh, my God. And just a few more days to Endgame and we'll all be coming together. To watch it. To see to it in watch the, the cinema. Film. Of course. To watch the film. What did you think? Anyway, you mucky-minded lot, get out of my podcast. That's it for this <laughs> extra special chunk of content hashtag content hashtag blessed Uh, thank you so much for listening thanks once again to Helen O'Hara thank you thank you to me and it's back to me in the studio okay (laughs) I I hope he's there and on that note that is it for our Captain Marvel spoiler special our next spoiler special very exciting one it is going to be for us with director Jordan Peele very excited about that one as well and then after that probably Hellboy as well I'd say we'll probably do a Hellboy Spurs special and then after that it'll be something called Avengers Endgame I'm not really sure what that's what it's about Avengers Squee Game so it's going to be a lot of fun the regular podcast is up every single Friday so check it out if you would like to do subscribe on iTunes and leave us nice five star ratings if you could as well that'd be really really lovely anyway until we meet again it is goodbye from our very own Editor Marvel 
Goodbye. Terry White. Oh, sorry, I ruined it. Let's do it again. Stumped, you stumped her. <laughs> it is goodbye from our very own editor Marvel, Terry White. Goodbye. It's goodbye from our very own online staff writer, Ben Travis. Bye. It's goodbye from our very own editor-at-large Marvel, Helen O'Hara. <laughs> Toodaloo. <laughs> you see, it doesn't work. Captain Marvel's stupid. It's a stupid concept. Just call yourself Carol and be done with it. And that's enough for me. It is goodbye from me. Although I could keep talking for a little bit longer because James Dyer is really now giving me the evils and I'm delaying the pilot TV podcast with every single sentence that I utter. It's a real shame, isn't it? Anyway, thanks so much for listening. See you next time. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>